Welcome to Mavericks with Marty. I'm Marty Kodish, your host, and today I have with me Joe Killian from NC Policy Watch. Joe is very much a, uh, a liberal media reporter, and often either I am or uh, one of the boards I serve on are the target of one of his pieces. But I've often found Joe to be very fair in his reporting in terms of getting the quotes right and at least giving the people he's criticizing a chance to make a comment. Now, not everyone chooses to do that, and a lot of people do avoid the media. But uh, I don't shy away from it simply because I believe I'm comfortable in my decision-making, why I do something, and if I'm going to vote on something and it's regarding something that's going to impact the public or the university, I should be willing to articulate why I voted on that or why I said what I said. And again, I found Joe to be fair about getting my quotes right. We have a chance to talk about journalism overall. We talk about the fact that Joe grew up in trailer parks, and we talk about how different backgrounds lead to different opinions. And I had to tell them, that's where I'm from. Like, but for, you know, a, a few small things, that's where I would have gone to college. Why do you think I think that's shameful? Why do you think that I think that that is, you know, beneath someone who should be on the board of governors, who should be the head of the board of governors? I think that it's admirable that somebody who comes from a modest background, went to a community college, has risen to the level where they're now making decisions at the UNC system level and are looked to by the other board of governors members as a leader. Why would that be a bad thing? And people were like, what are you talking about? And like, I think because of the way I speak, because of I don't have a strong accent, because of I don't know the way I dress or something, because I work for a newspaper. People well, I just assume you're liberal. So they you're think snob. I'm. They think I'm liberal. They think I'm a Yankee. <laughs> they think um, you know, that I went to Duke or UNC or Johns Hopkins or something, and they just don't understand that I'm Eastern North Carolina trailer trash. Like you know, like I come from a very modest background, and you know, the people in my family were commercial fisher. My my grandfather who I told you about and my uncle, they died at sea as commercial fishermen, like not that long ago, you know? I mean, like, so the idea that I would in some way have affinity with them and look down on Randy Ramsey is just silly. Joe talks about how his mother gave him some great advice about uh, what it meant to be a maverick and to voice your opinion and the impacts of that sort of decision to take that path. I think I was like 12 years old. Um, I got to that point in your young development as a young man where I started having strong opinions and voicing strong opinions. And my mother sat me down at the kitchen table and she said, let me tell you this. It's a free country. You can say whatever you want, but what you say and how you say it will always have consequences. Sometimes that consequence will just be people will think you're an asshole and they won't want to talk to you anymore and they won't want to listen to you anymore. We talk about what it means to be a maverick. And I think, um, you know, in terms of being a maverick, I mean, I think that the most maverick thing you can do is make up your mind for yourself and don't be a team player. We talk about the similarity between Trump and Bernie Sanders camps. I, I don't think that either ethically or morally or politically, I don't think that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are equivalent, uh, but I don't much like either of them. Um, and I don't much like either of the people who are really into them. Um, I had to go to a bunch of Trump rallies, uh, during that 
period when he came through North Carolina, pretty much every time he came through North Carolina, wherever it was, we were going, uh, Hillary Clinton rallies. I had to go to Bernie Sanders rallies. And, uh, I can tell you that I had the worst time at Trump rallies and Bernie Sanders rally. We talk about Ben Shapiro and freedom of speech. We get into the whole UNC journalism issue. And so I think it's basically this fascinating story, which is one of the reasons why I began writing about it. It's this fascinating story about two people who are generations apart, who are different genders, who are different races, who are both journalists, and who have differing ideas about journalism, which is itself, as we talked about earlier in this conversation, undergoing something of an evolution, not only in the delivery methods, not only in how we pay for it, not only in how it's presented to us, but also in what journalism is. We have a chance to talk about the history of newspapers and journalism and how it's changed over the years. We talk about cancel culture and what does it really mean and what are the impacts of cancel culture? So like when we say canceled, I always I always ask people like, honestly, not because I'm trying to be an asshole. What do you mean by that? Like, what is the what is the what is the real consequence of saying a controversial thing? It's what my mom, my mother said to me when I was 12 years old, right? Some people might think you're an asshole. They might not want to listen to you anymore and they might not want to talk to you anymore. But you know who's going to want to listen to and talk to you? The people who agree with that stuff. And that's an enormous audience. Joe Rogan is doing fine. You know, so Neil Young is mad at him. Who gives a shit? Did I cancel my Spotify subscription? I did. Do they care? No, absolutely not. Let me go to title. You know why? Joe Rogan's got the biggest podcast audience of anybody. We talk about how it's not a bad thing to change your mind. One of the things that I remember him saying, saying that really stuck with me was when in this country did it become such a bad thing to change your mind? If you're a politician now and you're in a different, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're in a different place uh, on a political issue than you were 10 years ago. Good for you. You know what I mean? Who wants to be the same person they were when they were 20 years old on anything? Well, thanks, Joe, for coming on uh, Mavericks. Uh, you are one of my first few guests on here, and I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for the invitation. And we've known each other for a number of years when you were back at the News and Record yeah. covering different things in town. And then most recently with uh, NC Policy Watch, um, mainly focused on Board of Governors stuff and then some other uh, politics out there as well. So if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself. Sure. Yeah. I'm Joe Killian. Uh, I'm an investigative reporter for NC Policy Watch. Uh, I was in daily newspapers for a decade, 15 years, something like that, um, depending upon how far back you really want to go. And uh, I've been at NC Policy Watch, a, a nonprofit uh, newsroom in, based in Raleigh, North Carolina for a little over five years now. Now, I know how a lot of my friends describe NC Policy Watch, but how would <laughs> yeah. you how would you describe NC Policy Watch? Well, you know, people say like, you know, left-leaning NC Policy Watch or Policy Watch, a project of the left-leaning North Carolina Justice Center or anything like that. That doesn't bother me. I mean, you know, primarily I think because I don't think I ever worked for any publication, no matter how straight it was or how, you know, much of a large daily newspaper it was where somebody didn't have some opinion about it. Um, the, the, the thing that I always say about Policy Watch, though, is like it's a nonprofit newsroom that's part of a nonprofit newsroom network that's in 20 plus states now um, or an affiliate of that network. And the the difference is that, you you know, 
you know, where the money's coming from. It's a nonprofit. You know where the money's coming from. You know who's on the board of directors. You know all that stuff. When I worked for the News and Record, the News and Record had a lobbyist that they sent to Raleigh. But you never heard about that. You didn't hear about it in the newsroom. You didn't hear about it outside the newsroom. But there's no large newspaper that doesn't have a lobbyist, right? And so the idea that the North Carolina Justice Center does lobbying work or sues people for civil rights stuff or whatever and that we're, uh, you know, a project of the of the Justice Center you know, to me, that doesn't much bother me. I mean, if anybody's got a problem with people suing people over civil rights abuses, you know, it's like it's colleagues of, of mine who are like attorneys who aren't part of Policy Watch, but are part of the Justice Center. You know, like, they, for instance, they like sue hotels and motels in areas that have decided that they're not going to rent rooms to Native Americans, right? If anybody's got a problem with that, have a problem with it all day. If you think it makes me part of some left-wing conspiracy, no problem with that either, right? You know, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I think I've always prided myself in as a reporter is that the people who I report on, if they're Republicans, if they're Democrats, if they're libertarians, if they're socialists, whoever they are, they feel like I'm fair to them. And, you know, like if, if they got a problem with, and you know this from my reporting on you, if they've got a problem with something I've written, they can call me up and talk to me about it. If they think I got something wrong, I'm open to, you know, to, to fixing it, uh, you know, and I, I don't feel like people walk away from my reporting going, that guy's really unfair, which is my big concern. I, I definitely agree with that. You know, I, I know a lot of people out there, some of my friends that say, oh, I'm not going to talk to Joe Killian. Sure. You know, I I know the punchline for the story and I say, yeah, you know, you may know the punchline for the story, but he is fair in his reporting in terms of accurately getting the quotes right. And, you know, and that, frankly, that's a, a big problem. Out there, <laughs> people misquoting sure. uh, someone, but if you're, if you're getting the quotes right to me, that's 50% fair right there. Yeah. And then beyond that, I think you do present, um, you know, we know, it's going to be Republicans are bad, you know, in a lot of those articles, but, and that's the story. But at least if you tell some portion of it that explains the viewpoint of the other side, in my opinion, that's better than if we uh, put our head in the sand and don't talk to you. And then you're only reporting one side of it. And then you're saying, Hey, I reached out to the board of governors or uh, the trustees and got no comment. Right. Um, And one of the things that I think people, you know, journalists screw this up, whoever they work for, it happens. You know, one of the things that I think you need to be able to say when you write a story is, you know, I reached out to those people. If they wanted to be my story, they could have just as much real estate as anybody else, but they either chose not to get back to me or they sent me a one line statement or whatever. And that's just where it is. I've definitely talked to people on both sides of the political aisle who, you know, talked to me about a story and it changed the way I saw the story. You know, it changed the, it changed how, how I saw the story or how I reported the story or what kind of questions I asked. And I do think that if you, you can just decide not to engage with media, that's fine. That's your right. If you want to have some agency in how that story comes out, be it what you said in the story, or just, you want to talk to the reporter so they know where you're coming from, maybe give them some, 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 uh, evidence or some, some, uh, you know, insight they don't have, then you got to, you got to give them a chance. And I mean, the, you know, great reporters exist at every kind of newspaper. I mean, you know, um, I used to love reporting next to Kerry Travis, who worked for the Carolina Journal. It's kind of the NC Policy Watch's opposite number out of the Locke Foundation, right? Um, and, you know, I, I never really had like a personal problem with John Hammer when I was 
reporting next to him at city council meetings uh, for the Rhino Times. He, he wrote some stuff about me that was <laughs> was a little a little weird, but you know, like on a personal level, he and I never never had a problem. Scott Yost, when uh, who used to work for the Rhino Times yeah. here in Greensboro, sort of a right wing weekly. Um, you know, it's like if if we were at a meeting and I had a sandwich and he didn't have a sandwich and it was going late, I'd cut it in half and give him half. You know, it's like reporters like reporters. And, um, you know, I don't really, uh, I can be like attorneys on two sides of an issue at the end of the day, they can still go out and, you know, have a, a meal or something afterwards and chit chat and put that behind them. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, it does seem like there's a, obviously media has changed drastically and continues Uh, to change. When you think I was talking to Margaret Moffat the other day and she was telling me about the size or the number of reporters that were at the news and record back in the day versus now it's gone from like what a hundred down to four. I'm not sure how many people are over there anymore. When I was there, like, so my first day at the news and record, so I, I started off, I had an internship at the news and record and I would freelance some pieces for them while I was a student at uh, UNCG. And, uh, when I walked in there, it was just bustling and full of reporters and it had its own cafeteria at the bottom that was like complete, completely self-sufficient and people, cars were going in and out and the advertising people were buzzing and the whole building was full. They could didn't have enough space for people. They were trying to figure out where they were going to put desks. And that was down from where it had been five years or 10 years earlier. You know what I mean? And it was the third largest newspaper in the state, you know, only to the Charlotte Observer and the, and the News and Record. Um, because those are the largest cities, you know, and um, it was just really bustling. But but I mean, management was the real problem. I mean, all all of of print media kind of hit a shoal where it didn't deal with the Internet properly. And Craigslist came in and ate its advertising lunch on certain types of ads and they screwed up subscription models and how you're going to price digital ads and how you're going to, if you're going to expect people to pay for stuff online or not, it's like a, a guy who, um, great Baltimore reporter who, who's, uh, God, why is his name escaping me? Who did the wire? What is based on the wire years ago when he was working for the sun in Baltimore, he said, he said he told his bosses, it's like the early nineties, you can't give away your product for free and then insist that people pay for it. They're just going to think it's worth nothing. And they were like, what are you crazy? Come on. And five years later, they were like, maybe we we shouldn't have been giving this stuff away for free. Uh, And nowadays it's like, if you ask people to pay for even a digital subscription, which is dramatically less expensive than uh, a paper subscription, most in most uh, places, uh, they just seem baffled that you would ask them to pay anything. And meanwhile, all these people have to put the thing together. They have to do the reporting. They have to, you know, um, the internet's definitely, train people to think that information should always be free out there. And then also, you know, since maybe 2010 uh, or so, the social media advertising elements where you can run an ad, see it hit immediately, uh, track Mm -hmm. who clicked on it. You know, there's been a lot of competition for how to reach consumers and how people are getting their news. I read something the other day was saying that uh, the main source of news for most citizens is Facebook. <laughs> At least it's not TikTok. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> my thing is like, so I will always have a sentimental place in my heart for newspapers because I came up in newspapers. I grew up in newsrooms. I, you know, uh, I, I love the smell of the presses. I like, 
seeing your thing on the front page, you know, but to me, the journalism is important as long as that continues, you know, I think that's the important thing and the delivery method is not so important. Um, that might come from being a kid who was just generationally, like I remember very clearly a time before the internet, a time after the internet, a time before social media and a time after social media. I think if you've had both of those experiences, you realize that everything is transitory. You know, at one point, MySpace was all, you know, yeah, <laughs> at one right. point, at one point, Friendster was going to be the big thing, you know, um, and I'm just not opposed to reading something on my phone or an iPad or a laptop. I'm fine with that. Um, I, I think a lot of people who are running, particularly newspapers, but really all of media uh, for, for a very long time, and sometimes people who continue to run that sort of legacy media just have this idea that if they, you know, hold firm and put their hands up, they're going to stop the tide, you know, and, and that's just not, you just got to move with stuff. And it's like auto manufacturers in the seventies yeah. and the resistance. And then you're trying to put up uh, tariffs to prevent competition from coming in. But now look where we are. Yeah. And you know, what's really funny is the thing about this the other day when I was listening to a podcast, I think it's really funny how now with all the new tools we have and all the new distribution and all that, we're basically recreating what we had in the thirties and forties. When you think about it, it's like, I listen to massively popular podcasts right now, Joe Rogan, Mark Maron, like that level of like millions of people listening to it. And what are they doing? They're doing their own advertisements, like people on the radio in the thirties, you're going to love lucky strikes, right? Except now it's like stamps.com, right? Or, uh, my, you know, uh, what's with, uh, Casper mattresses. This is the best mattress I've ever, you know, it's like, that's what DJs in the thirties did, you know, and, and they were in little places where they were doing it in a room, you know, as large as this. And they had sponsors that would pay for this much of it. And then it turned into this enormous thing. And then all of that caved and is now being rebuilt in the same type of way, but you know, just digitally and, and in the and newspapers are the same way and newspapers and other media are the same way. When people talk to me about how, well, the media has changed and, you know, we need to get back to the old days of, of impartiality and objectivity and, and all that in this country, the first newspapers were partisan broadsides that, you know, I mean, you know, we're going to go see Hamilton at, uh, at, uh, the Greensboro at the, the Tanger center tonight, downtown, my wife and I, and there's a whole song in there about how Hamilton is going to anonymously under pseudonym, uh, you know, essentially slander his political rivals using newspapers, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that was, th those were the foundations of what we came to think of as journalism, uh, you know, which people tried to, tried to teach as, uh, teach and, and, um, and practice as a, as a discipline and a science for a, a, a small period in journalism's history, you know, but journalism encompasses everything. It's straight daily newspaper reporting. It's long form magazine stuff. It's John Hood and it's Nicole Hannah Jones. It's, you know, uh, it's Ben Shapiro writing columns for Newsweek. It's, uh, you know, it's Glenn Greenwald and it's, you know, I mean, all those things are journalism. None of that stuff isn't real journalism. Um, but hasn't the, uh, hasn't the money and the attention span of the consumer changed significantly where, you know, you used to be able to get paid to do a, a very thorough investigative piece perhaps. And now, you know, the, that gig doesn't exist out there as much. Um, well, I think, so you're, I think you know, especially changing. like the news and record yeah. and you're being tasked to cover a whole host of things. And so it's a light touch. It's a short kind of clickbait article. You can't do a deep dive. And so that's very different from when you or Margaret were doing these more kind of hard hitting investigative pieces 
in Greensboro, but you might have, you might work on it for six months. Yeah. Well, you know, it, at my time in journey, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 40 now. So Margaret could talk to this probably a little better than I could, because I think she was in the business in a little bit of a different time. Um, when I came into journalism, at least at local newspapers, the job where you could work on for something for six months, they've had maybe two of those in the whole newsroom. Taft Wireback did that, right? Or, uh, you know, Lorraine Ahern used to do that a bit. Or these are just names from yeah, yeah. news and record history. Um, you know, everybody else was writing dailies. I used to write between uh, two and 300 stories a year for the news and record when I, when I worked there, right? Um, when I first started out, it was like 100 and something, you know? And it, it worked up to just more and more and more. And um like most reporters were doing that. And I don't mean last year, I mean, 10 years ago, you know what I mean? So those, those, um, those jobs where you do that deep a dive, especially for a local newspaper. Now for a magazine, that's different for the New York times. That's different for the LA times, you know, that used to be different. I think in your local newspaper, having a really good investigative journalist who would, who would, put that much effort into it and that much time and be given the, that many resources um, to, to do it has been rare for decades now. But the difference now is things are replacing that. Now there's ProPublica. Now there's, you know, Report for America. Now there's the, the state's newsroom network, which is the affiliate thing that I'm part of. Like we have reporters who will spend months on things. Why? Because it's not a subscription model. It's not a clickbait model. We don't sell any advertising, you know? So like what we're doing, we're doing because the people who put money into it believe that it needs to be done and are willing to finance that. And but don't they also believe that these stories will impact elections in the end? I mean, I mean, it depends on who it is. I mean, you know, we're, we're part of a 501c3. So if we impact elections or we're trying to impact elections or whatever, we could lose our status. Well, um, I mean, come on, don't you do that every day? <laughs> well, I mean, the people, the people who like Rob Schofield, I think is writes commentary and his commentaries are usually here's, you know, why this Republican policy is bad or whatever. You know, my thing is like, you know, the, 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 the stuff that I'm writing about is about the people in power who's in power right now, North Carolina Republicans. I mean, you know, look around in state government, you know, the democratic party is almost an also ran. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the governor is a Democrat and he can veto things right now. And right now there's a slim, you know, by slim margin, they can sustain his veto, but the people who are sort of like moving policy you know, people who are deciding what things, what bills move and things, those are Republicans. Um, you know, the policy watch has a kind of a rich history of, uh, destroying democratic careers too. I mean, the, the, um, the, the, you know, we, uh, stuff that they did before I got there, sent a democratic politician to jail. The, the, um, you know, Billy Ball, my old colleague, Billy Ball, he, he wrote a story about, uh, sexual harassment, at the general assembly that centered entirely on a democratic politician. Um, so in, you know, in terms of that, I mean, you know, and, and my thing is too, I don't care who like, who's a Democrat and who's a Republican. I know that people might not believe me when I say that, but I grew up on military bases and trailer parks, right? You know, my dad was a career Marine. My grandfathers were Navy guys. We went hunting and fishing and, you know, uh, mud trucking and, you know. And, so and, where's home? Well, it, that's a good question. Whenever you ask a military kid that, they go, it's yeah. complicated, right? I was born in North Carolina. I was born in Eastern North Carolina. I was technically born in Moorhead City, North Carolina, but that's because that's where the nearest hospital was. Um, you know, we lived in, in, in uh, my, my mother's family lived in a unincorporated part of Carteret County. Um, 
And, uh, you know, if, I, if, if we were closer to Eastern North Carolina, I could tell you Broad Creek and you would know where that was. But if you get 10 miles from Broad Creek, not so much. Um, Randy Ramsey, who's the, the current head of the, um, UNC board of governors, like he and I are basically from the same place. Um, you know, like he, uh, you know, a, a little, as they say down there, up the road a piece, but, uh, you know, but my dad was born in the Bronx and, um, he grew up in the, in the Bronx in the seventies and, uh, was a career Marine. He met my mother, uh, at a military base in North Carolina and we bounced around a bit. We were stationed at Camp Lejeune. We were stationed at Cherry Point and Havelock. We were st- the longest we ever stayed anywhere was three years. And that was in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, where there was a Marine Reserve Station and some Navy uh, Navy bases up there, and um, so and then I came back down here for uh, for college. My dad, my da- my dad was a Marine, and he uh, well, he was in uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Shield, and then Desert Storm. He was in the most recent uh, the most recent Iraq War, uh, the sequel, Electric Boogaloo. Um, he uh, you know he he was in Bosnia. He was like all over the world. Um, gone a whole lot when we were kids. Um, but, uh, and my, you know, my grandfather, both my grandfathers were Navy guys. Um, but the only reason I, I'm not, I didn't join the Marines is because my dad talked me out of it. My, you know, uh, nobody in my family had gone to college. Uh, and, uh, I seemed like the kind of bookish kid who probably should go to college. And I did go to college. Uh, but then my, the beginning of my song, I went to UNCG. I went to UNCG and my, um, my, uh, Sophomore year, the beginning of my sophomore year, 9-11 happened, right? And uh, I was coming from a military family and a military background, seeing this unprecedented thing happen to America. I thought this was my generation's Pearl Harbor moment. I thought we were all going to join up, right? So, you know, I tell my dad, well, I'm going, I'm going down and I'm enlisting. And he goes, hold on. Uh, first of all, I'm for sure going to get deployed. Like, you know, we don't know where yet. We don't know for how long, but you know how it is from my, my previous deployments. I could be gone a year. I could be gone two years. I could come back for a month and be gone for another nine. Uh, you, you know, your sister's still a kid. Your mom is going to be out of her mind uh, already with me over there. It doesn't need to be two of us. If I promise you, if you want to do this in three or four years, it'll be there for you. Uh, you know, hang out, watch, you know, watch out you know, there are other ways to serve your country than to do this. And, uh, you know, I waited a couple of years and saw what happened, you know, in terms of the Iraq war and Afghanistan. And my dad made a good call. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, not only because I think it would have been disastrous. Who knows if we both would have come back, but also because I, I think he saw something that I didn't, which is that you can get caught up in this, um, rush after something, an event like 9-11 and not think about where's the war going to be in a year? Like where geographically is it going to be? How are we going to be waging it? How are you going to feel about that? Who's going to be in charge? You know, if you're going to join the Marine Corps and you're going to go when they call you, you can't care about any of that. You, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go when they tell you and, you know, not ask so many questions. And I think my dad, um, correctly sensed that, not asking so many questions was not going to be my strong suit uh, <laughs> from having raised me. Uh, he he kind of got that. Um, and, but, but I very, de- I very nearly did join the Marine Corps. And I think about that all the time about like that sliding door situation of like what, what could have been if, if I'd done that. And I got friends, even friends who are journalists who, who uh, did do that, 
maybe not right, right around, the, not, not right at the same time, but you know, Nick Oshner from, no. uh, for, he's an investigative reporter in Charlotte, a fantastic investigative reporter. Uh, one of the co-authors of that book, um, uh, the vote collectors about the, the whole, uh, McCray Dallas, uh, thing. Oh yeah. Uh, his wife, uh, Sarah, uh, was a reporter who got embedded with uh the in the with an army unit i believe uh went overseas came back joined the army just got back from uh from uh not from basic but from ocs um and uh uh you know people people do that people do do that that is a career path uh and you never thought about uh kind of a, a military correspondent or well you know i had an opportunity early in my career um i was writing some stories making a little bit of noise and a guy came to me and said um you know i'm with the i believe it was the army is the branch that it was with we're looking for now we're still at war at this point um in my early 20s we're looking for local reporters to embed with units from these areas and because I know a little bit about, about your background and uh, you, that your family was in the military, thought maybe you might be interested in this. Could you talk your employer into either giving you the time off or running correspondence, you know, mm. that you do or whatever? And I love that idea because it, it goes it goes back to, um, you know, like very early journalism. Uh, you know, it used to be the Mark Twain, right? When he was a newspaper reporter, they used to send him places just to write letters back. You know, uh, you know, letters from Hawaii, letters from, you know, before Hawaii was a vacation destination when it was a place where they were trying to convert uh, the island to Christianity. You know, um, the uh, you know, and, and I thought, man, I could go over there and be a correspondent. I could do like the uh, the Sebastian Younger thing, you know, where you, you go over and you and I was re- I was really in love with that idea. But there were two problems. One was. Uh, I was working for the news and record at the time and they were and I actually I ran it up the flagpole. I was like, what do you think? And they were like, we're not a military town. We don't know that there's going to be enough interest in this for us to like have a full-time staffer who's in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. Uh, so like the best we could probably do is tell you that your job would still be here when you got back, but we, we couldn't like pay you to do that exclusively. So what did you study at uh, UNCG? Poli sci, political science. Yeah. I, you know, I was always interested in journalism, but we were in this really interesting, I was in this interesting situation because um, I told you that the, the longest I ever stayed anywhere when I was a kid was Bristol, Connecticut for three years, right? Well, when I was in Bristol, Connecticut, there was a local paper, still exists remarkably, called the Bristol Press. And they had a program through that paper where they went to high schools, local high schools, and taught kids about journalism. And, you know, gave, taught them about the inverted pyramid and who, where, what, when, why, and taught them to do basic interviews and stuff. And then they would publish on one page every week stories that these kids wrote about things teenagers would be interested in. Um, and it grew into this enormous multinational nonprofit called Youth Journalism International that is still run by two friends and mentors of mine who, you know, when I was a kid taught me about this, this stuff. Now they work with, with teenagers on six continents. Um, so is it like a teach for America, but focused on journalism? Well, there's one of those already called report for America. This thing is specifically about like middle school and 
and high school kids, basically, learning about journalism and from wherever they are in the world, writing about it. So, for instance, they had people write, they had, they had a Russian kid writing about, and, and Ukrainian kids writing about the current crisis there, right? The, um, when there's like an enormous, uh, well, they just did this enormous uh, project where kids from, I don't remember how many countries, I think maybe a dozen countries, were um, part of writing about sexual assault in their cultures. So that's very different in a Muslim culture, for instance, than it, it would be in the United States, than it is in the UK, than it is in Mexico, right? And so they they did this enormous project and, and they win awards just like constantly. It was in its nascent, nascent phase when I was part of it. And my wife who I hasten to say I have not been dating since high school. We we had a long Harry and Sally phase where we were best friends but weren't romantic, and then it got romantic uh, later on in our adulthood, in our, in our 30s. But um, I met her there through that. And she and which, was- uh, Which high school? I was at Bristol Eastern High School. She was at Bristol Central High School. We were at uh, rival schools. And so we, we met there, became best friends, and she went off to journalism school and I went off and studied poli sci. And the way that we determined to do that is that we were both interested in journalism and we were um, doing enough work through that program that eventually they let us do small stories in the real newspaper, you know, but when we got licenses and we were 18 and stuff and um, that, you know, it was like $40 a story, go out and cover a car wreck or whatever, you know, and stringing is what they used to call it. And um, the, the, something that used to be popular, especially at small town newspapers where they don't have a lot of staff. And so um, the, we were both interested in what we we're going to do uh, for college. Like, what are we going to study? And we went around the newsroom and said, you're a journalist. What did you study? Did you, do you go to journalism school? Do you not go to journalism school? And it was about 50, 50 people who said, go to journalism school. That's what I did. And people who said, well, I studied history because I was interested in history. And then I just worked on my student newspaper and I got a, you know, I got an internship at a newspaper. You don't always have to study journalism. You can just do journalism. And I was interested in politics and my wife, uh, you know, her interest was primarily in journalism. So, uh, she took that route and I took this route and we ended up at the same paper about 15 years later. Um, That's funny. yeah, she worked in Massachusetts. She went to Emerson college, uh, in Boston, um, where the new Dean, of uh, the the UNC journalism school just came from, um, and uh, you know I went to UNCG and I and I studied poli sci. I was a reporter and then the editor of the paper there, and then I got internships at a couple of different papers, including the News and Record, and ended up getting my first full time job there. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, when I was in um, junior high, I wrote, I did a lot of creative writing, and I thought that my career path would be to be a writer actually at that time. Well, thank God you went the other way. I know, right? <laughs> and then in uh, high school, I wrote for Grimsley's uh, paper and wrote featured stories for that. Do you have and any of those? my most popular story was how to get out of a speeding ticket. <laughs> You're like the PJ O'Rourke. And of, uh... Actually, it's interesting. The first time that someone called me a maverick was my journalism professor in uh, high school. Hey, that'll do it. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was funny back then, but she, you know, I wanted to pick the stories that people would find really interesting. And that wasn't just what everybody was covering. A lot of them were just covering mundane stories. And yeah. so I wanted something that would really pop out there and that would typically make the front page. And I guess that kind of carried on in life for me when I'm promoting my businesses, I try and promote things that will, draw attention that will uh, reach the front page. Well, you know, it's interesting because what do you, it, it, I always ask if you have any of those old copies of your high school newspaper, because uh, 
the, I think that stuff is like worth its weight in gold. I got friends who have like copies of their old high school. I got some copies of my old college newspaper, but you'd be surprised how relevant that stuff remains. I was just, um, it was this week. It was on Monday. I went over to UNCG and I, I saw Ben Shapiro speak at, at the Fleming. I was there as well. Oh, really? So, so yeah. So there were like 2000 plus people. I was told it was a capacity was, was, uh, 2050, I was told, and they cut it off. So it had to be at least that many people. Um, it was really organized too. Well, I mean, this is what they do. Yes. That group is very good at this. They're, I mean, like Shapiro's people, but also the, the, uh, young Americans foundation or, or, uh, young Americans for freedom, the same, same thing. Um, like they bring speakers to college campuses and very often they're controversial speakers and they know what that's going to be. So they set this up with, I mean, it's very, very professional. The, the, um, but I remember that when I talk about Mavericks, so when I was at UNCG, a couple of the big speaking controversies, I was kind of at the center of them because I was the editor of the newspaper in that period. And the school brought, um, it's like a, so you were the editor of the newspaper at UNCG. Yeah. The Carolinian. And you weren't a journalism major. There was no journalism major at UNCG. They don't okay. have a journalism program. Yeah. yeah. So like they still have a newspaper. They, they, I'm pretty sure they still have one. They had one then it was a weekly. Um, but, uh, so there, yeah, there was no, there were, it was like, I was competing with journalism majors. I was competing with English majors and they wanted to write poetry. So the, um, but, uh, so, uh, while I was there, the school brought, nobody remembers this anymore, but you can look it up. The, uh, the school brought a woman in for, um, like a safe sex week kind of a thing they were doing. Uh, and her name is Tristan Terramino and she was a columnist for the village voice. Uh, she had written books. She gives college tours. She went on Oprah. She had lectured at like Brown and, you know, Yale and stuff. Um, about like safe sex stuff, but she was also like, you know, heavily into like kink and LGBTQ stuff. Right. She didn't mention any of that stuff in her actual speech. Her whole speech was like, here's why you should use a condom. Here's a funny illustration of why you should use a condom. Here's some stuff about your body that you should be aware of. It's, it's good to know your body, stuff like that. People got mad, right? They got so mad. And um, particularly conservatives on campus were incensed, not only that, that this is a woman who had written what they thought were dirty books and all this stuff, but it turns out, turns out, I mean, people should know this, Tristan had uh, like appeared in and co-directed some porn, she did some <laughs> pornography, um, like as part of her whole, like, you know, sex ed thing, this was like, uh, you know, better, safer sex practices stuff. And they were so mad about it. Right. And, you know, like, so nothing illegal has happened, right? This is just a controversial person who's come to campus and didn't even really say anything that controversial, but people are very mad, right? It's the left right now with Ben Shapiro. They're mad at, at him coming. Right. And then it was the right and the school reacted, I think in the worst possible way, which is the, the, the chancellor, then Pat, her name was Patty Sullivan back then. She, she put out the statement that she was like, well, I didn't know that this was who they had coming and nobody like that should speak on this campus. And I got mad because I didn't have a dog in the fight. I didn't know Tristan Terramino. I didn't really know her work that much or anything, but I did know that like I'd been at the talk because it had been people have been talking about it. And so I knew that there was nothing in the talk that was any more controversial than the eighth grade sex ed stuff that I'd gotten in Carteret County, North Carolina. Right. So I was like, 
what, what are you so upset about? It's like, well, she did pornography. I'm like, that's legal in this country. It's been adjudicated. Like, you know, what, like, what is, what's your next argument? And they didn't have one. They just didn't like her on spec. Right. So I said that what year was this, this was 2004, I believe. Well, they should see what's at uh, a lot of the schools now. Yeah. So I, and I said, you know, that's screwy. Like it's, 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 it's bad that the university is on the side of trying to censor this person sort of on spec, not even for what she said. So we invited her back the newspaper. And I think the couple of other groups got together and, and called her up and said, how'd you like to come back? But this time talk about why you did pornography, why, why you do pornography, like why you think that's a good thing. Why, why you think a feminist pornographer is a thing. Like people seem so excited about it. Now they were excited about it when you weren't even talking about that. Why don't you come back and actually talk about it? So she did. And like so Joe Killian, the provocateur in, uh, in college, my, mo- my mother would tell you this goes back to fourth grade, but so, yeah, so we, we invited her back and um, she came back and we packed out this enormous ballroom in the Elliott University Center, which then was like a new thing uh, on campus. And um, and people came. There was a spot on Bill O'Reilly about it. Uh, <laughs> um, people were like mad. They showed up and people people were. Uh, but this is the difference. Right. So over the course of my time at UNCG, people were mad about that. They were mad about Tristan. They were mad when Maureen Dowd came, right? That's conservatives. Uh, They were mad when Mike Adams, I don't know if you remember Mike Adams, controversial UNC Wilmington professor, he came and a couple of times and talked there. Liberals are mad about that, right? Nobody threw anything. Nobody, I don't even remember anybody like picketing or disrupting. I mean, Tristan, Tristan gave her whole thing about why I'm a feminist pornographer and nobody yelled anything. Nobody threw anything nobody chanted nobody sang any songs they they showed up and rubbernecked because they were interested and some of them were mad and they gave quotes about how they were mad and it was sick and disgusting and all this stuff uh but the whole thing went off without a hitch all of those angela davis came to uncg when i was there and spoke and people were like that was similar to the ben shapiro event it was pretty tame the Um, the the angela davis thing you mean well no i'm saying in terms of you didn't have a lot of um uh, major problems there. there well, they threw, some, they threw some people out. I mean, the, yeah, but you, you know. didn't have like fights break out. No, no. But what like I think was really smart though, it was very interesting. I, you they know, did the competing event. They did the competing event. That was smart. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, the dumbest thing you can do if you don't like Ben Shapiro is throw a bunch of gas on this fire, show up, scream, wave signs. It's not like nobody did that, but largely they just went and had a dance party on the other side of campus. Right. They were like, why would we go over there? And I thought that is such a smart, mature reaction to a thing you don't like. There's a thing I don't like happening over there. Therefore, I'm not going to go over there. I'm going to go over here to a thing I like better. Right. And um, and when I talked with the with the I say kids and sound like I'm 100 years old. But when I talked to the students there who were at the event, I went over afterward after the Shapira thing, talk, talk with them a little bit they were like really bright, mature. They were like, yeah, why would we go over there? We got no, you know, it's like, well, you could go over and protest. And they're like, or we could be here with people that we like and, you know, talking about stuff we like, like, you know, th- th- those are, those are your options. I mean, there's a, there's a C between those two things, but you know, th- those are your options. And that's the, that's the weird thing. It's like, we're, we, we, we talk a lot about like, civil discourse now. And is there a problem with free speech on campuses and stuff? I always tell people this story when I was in like eighth grade, maybe not even eighth grade. So I think I was like 12 years old. Um, I got to that point 
in your young development as a young man where I started having strong opinions and voicing strong opinions. And my mother sat me down at the kitchen table and she said, let me tell you this. It's a free country. You can say whatever you want, but what you say and how you say it will always have consequences. Sometimes that consequence will just be people will think you're an asshole and they won't want to talk to you anymore and they won't want to listen to you anymore. Right. Um, so just know that going in, you can say whatever you want, but the consequence could be X, Y, Z. You don't know what it will be, you know, but, but maybe it will be, nobody wants to listen to or talk to you anymore. Go with God. Right. And so my mother who, my mother was not a political philosopher or uh, an academic or a politician. She was for most of my life. She was a bartender. She was a hairdresser. She uh, worked in a dental lab and made teeth. Um, you know, she was like a blue collar person, but she explained to me at that point, the difference between what we now call cancel culture, right? And actual censorship. When the government moves against you and tries to do something to limit your speech, that's censorship. When people hear what you say and they think that's an asshole, I don't want to talk to him or listen to him anymore. That's cancel culture. That's people going, the consequence for your speech is I cancel my subscription to Spotify. If you're Joe Rogan, or I don't go to your concert, or I don't go to your movie. I think you're an asshole. Right? Versus in Russia or China being gathered up and sent to a prison or sure. killed. Or even in this country. I mean, it's not, let's, let's not act like there's no government censorship, censorship in this country. We're banning books in schools right now. And not just like the, you know, oh, this LGBTQ book or whatever, just books that they think are, you know, not on the square for high school anymore. Stuff that I had to read in high school, right? Yeah, and I, I don't think we should ever ban books. I've got, you know, the back of my artist loft is a, a Fahrenheit 451 uh, mural mm-hmm. there. And- and I, I worry about that sometimes with cancel culture and with the idea of, of saying you can't think or say these things, you can't read this book, you can't publish this book, you can't have this speaker. But um, I do think there's certain age appropriate levels that we don't just, you know, we don't throw uh, porn into the school library, <laughs> right. you know. At- <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we call community standards. I yeah, mean, when I was yeah. at UNCG, when I was at UNCG, they had what was called the UNCG Media Board, right? And this was a group of people. Jerry Rowe was on this board, uh, former columnist for the News and Record and journalist. Uh, a group of people who would look at the at the college newspaper and decide, is this okay? Do we have problems with it, right? Um, and since the college was kicking in money for the production of the newspaper, you know, they got a say. So when I became editor of the paper... I had to go before this board every now and then, and they would have a question about why did you do this? Why did you say that? Why did this word get used? And what I would always say to them, if they had some question about content, like um, if there was a four letter word in the newspaper uh, and they'd be like, well, don't you think this is inappropriate? And I said, no, and neither does the law. If you go downstairs from this building that we're in the building right now and you go down to the bookstore, you're going to find magazines and papers and things that have those words in them. We've established that that's a community standards thing that's been adjudicated. Next question. You know, like it might not be to your taste. I recommend you not pick it up. You know, I, I assure you, everybody who's between the ages of 18 and 21 has heard these words before. They've seen these things before and they'll be fine. Um, and, you know, and all that happened was we had a great student newspaper. It was very well read. We won awards that, you know, um, you know, so I, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you that there's like community standards, but I also think that you have to be wary of making the community standard 
the most conservative possible rendition of this, right? Like Ben Shapiro, I was actually pretty impressed with that, not only with the with the way that the event was carried out, you know, but also by the way he handled himself. Like I disagree with almost everything he said, you know, like, you know, he, he and I don't, don't agree on many, if any political issues. Um, but one of the things that was impressive to me is that he like kept his cool when people screamed profanity at him. He just had, he had a joke ready. Cause if you do this often enough, get screamed, people scream at you and you have some jokes ready, um, you know, and all of that, but also that, when, you know, the, the the thing that hit me is that I understand where he's coming from, because if I was a conservative Orthodox Jew like Ben Shapiro is and is open about that informing his social and political philosophy, I also would be upset with some things in the culture. But I don't think that we can have a culture wherein the majority is dictated to by the religious and social taboos of the most conservative. Um, neither should the people who are, you know, like the most out there be deciding, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, I, but, uh, so that's, I think where, I mean, that's also where the constitution is. So I'm not alone in that, but the, but uh, you know, that is the thing that always bothers me. It's like that Tristan Terramino example I gave, right? It's like, if you don't like Tristan Terramino's book, don't read it. If you don't like her movies, don't watch them, right? The like I think that's an adult response at a place that is, you know, nobody here is under 18. Everybody here can legally read or watch any of this stuff or choose not to. Like if you when you treat people like children, that's, you know, that's well, I, you know, I think a lot of this goes back to people want a punching bag. Yeah. They want an enemy. They, you know, and and when they can vilify someone and demonize them, then at that point they feel like they can do or say anything like the guy that was commenting on Ben Shapiro's sister, you know? And so I, I might've missed that. What? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually a big trolling thing they do. Did uh, they do that at the event and I just missed it or yeah, they did it at the oh, event. See, a lot of that I couldn't hear because the acoustics weren't great. Sorry about that. It was hard to hear. Yeah. And actually, they've got a um, the gymnasium, you know, they've got a recording of it. I saw. So, yeah. So it's now a recording. And on that, you can hear a lot more of what was said. I, I had the same issue. I couldn't hear some of what they were Plus saying. Plus, he speaks really fast. People say I speak fast. Nothing is compared to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> yeah. He, I, I found it hard, hard to sit there and listen. You know, if I were sitting there giving his 20 minute speech, it probably would have been an hour. Yeah. Um, because he was so fast. Or, but I did appreciate that he made it through all that kind of canned uh, speech. And then, and he had some, some elements that weren't, but most of it was, you know, stuff he said before. Yeah. And, but then when he got to the Q and a, he had to think on his feet about yeah. every single question that was asked. And actually, you know, I was talking to Mark Walker um, the other day and, and that's one of the things that concerns me when politicians, um, and I won't name names, politicians won't show up and, and go to a debate because then it shows that maybe they can't think on their feet. That's not everybody's and, strength. Although I will say this, over the course of the last, like, I don't know, three or four years, I have been asked to do more public speaking. Uh, I've spoken at the journalism school at UNC. I, I spoke at Duke not that long ago, like two weeks ago. Um, next week, I'm going to talk to a, a journalism class at San Francisco State University. Um, I am moderating a panel at the Greensboro Bound Book Festival, the, the literary festival. Um, and it's just become a bigger part of what I do. And I remember years ago going to Elon University and seeing Ben Bradley, the 
sort of legendary editor of the Washington Post during the Watergate uh, saga, uh, he he had a canned speech. He had he had kind of like note cards or whatever. But he got to the podium and he realized he left his glasses at the hotel, and he went, "Ah, oh, damn." I left my glasses at the hotel. Let's just do questions. Questions are questions are the best part anyway. Let's just do questions. And he did questions for like an hour, right? And he was thinking on his feet, but what was true of Ben Bradley is also true of Ben Shapiro and is becoming true of me too, which is if you speak in front of enough crowds and you do enough Q and A, you kind of know what's coming. People are going to ask you the same questions over and over again. You will have had time to think about it. Some people will be rude. Some people will be fawning and you'll be able to react to it. I did. I do think that Ben Shapiro handled the Q and A part particularly well, much better than the canned speech part because he spoke so quickly. But the other thing that I th- I had two other thoughts. I thought, number one, this is a guy who has a lot of experience doing this. He's done a lot of these dates. He's done a lot of them at colleges. The other thing is uh, it's really easy to look like you're seven feet tall when you're playing against third graders. You know what I mean? Like 19 year old kids were getting up and saying things and he was dunking on them. And I'm like, yeah, that's, you can do that when you're you know, my age, which he is, uh, you know, and you went to Harvard, which I did not, you know, you coming in and intellectually dominating a bunch of 19 and 20 year olds is real impressive. Um, you know, you know, anyone could have attended the event. Yeah, for sure. You know, send up your, your best to kind of, you could have gone up (laughs) and asked a question as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I do, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would just because I, I don't have questions for Ben Shapiro. Like I, recognize that his worldview is very different from mine. And I, and I, and I also think that if I had been raised in the environment that he was raised in, I might have that worldview. Um, but didn't you find his Trump comment surprising? I was surprised. No. I was, um, I was actually very pleased to hear it. Yeah. Um, he will. If for people who didn't hear this or didn't go and watch the video, um, he said that he thinks it would be a mistake for the GOP to nominate Trump because he comes with, I believe he said a 747 full of baggage exactly. and that instead they should, they should, and uh, it would become a referendum on Trump. Right. And that if it's a referendum, a on, referendum Trump, on Biden, exactly. And the only way that you, you do that is to send somebody new. So then it's a referendum on Biden. And he suggested it should be DeSantis from Florida, which is now Ben Shapiro's home state. And, um, I thought that that was a very smart comment, but I didn't expect him to make a stupid comment about that for two reasons. One is that everybody knows there's kind of a civil war happening within the, or domestic disturbance happening within the Republican party right now. And I like people like Ben Shapiro who skipped two grades in school and then went to, you know, and went to Harvard law school, right? Like those are not the favorite conservatives of people who love Donald Trump, you know what I mean? If you go to a Trump rally, I, I don't feel like they're there for the sparkling wit. They're not there for the for for Trump's ability to, as Ben Shapiro did, call up data from studies and give you percentages of suicide risk and things like that. Trump's not going to do that. He's going to say dumb, offensive things, and people are going to go USA, USA. That's been his shtick all along. So Have you ever I, seen the uh, movie Idiocracy? Oh yes. So it's Absolutely. like that yeah. when they're, when they're going in and they're using all the um, just easy jabs. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that red meat, the easy jabs yeah. are, I mean, both sides. Well, like sure. well, what I, too, so uh, when in but. 2016, I was at the news and record and a daily newspaper, and I got sent to the, to the democratic national convention in Philadelphia. They sent a different reporter from the Winston-Salem journal, sort of the sister paper to the Republican national convention. And when I was there, there was this enormous tension in Philadelphia over what's Bernie going to do, right? Because 
Bernie had some delegates, right? And those delegates wanted Bernie and nobody but Bernie. I'm sure that that's true right now if you talk to a bunch of them, right? And so they were, I talked to some of them at the hotels and at the convention and they were like, nah, it's gotta be Bernie. It's gotta be Bernie. By then everybody knew it was Hillary Clinton, right? So including Bernie Sanders. And I got invited to this breakfast where um, Bernie Sanders was going to uh, address his delegates. It was this breakfast and, and he got up there and he said, my friends, uh, you know, uh, it's not going to be me this year. It's going to be uh, it's going to be Hillary Clinton. And uh, we have to unite as a party and defeat Donald Trump. Right. And they booed him. Impression. They booed him. They booed their own guy. They booed him. Right. And they were mad. And the same thing happened later on when Bernie Sanders uh, did an, uh, an online event with Joe Biden and said, guys, it's going to be Joe Biden. We got to stop Trump, you know, and um so, uh, you know, and, and they, like, if you look in the, I, I just took a picture, I took a picture of this when it happened and it came up today. So it was like today, four years ago or whatever in Facebook, uh, uh, no, more years ago than that now. But, uh, like the, the comments on the side were Bernie supporters being like, boo, you know, uh, no, never, never Biden, you know, like all this stuff. And so it's like, you know, I, I don't think that either ethically or morally or politically, I don't think that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are equivalent, uh, but I don't much like either of them. Um, and I don't much like either of the people who are really into them. Um, I had to go to a bunch of Trump rallies uh, during that uh, period when he came through North Carolina, pretty much every time he came through North Carolina, wherever it was, we were going uh, Hillary Clinton rallies. I had to go to Bernie Sanders rallies. And uh, I can tell you that I had the worst time at Trump rallies and Bernie Sanders rallies. Uh, the, the Bernie Sanders people were really media hostile. Um, when we showed up at the, I think it was the Duke energy center, uh, for a thing there, they didn't have any provision for media at all. There was no media table. There was no media hookup. You couldn't get Wi-Fi. Uh, they were just like, I don't know, find a seat. And I was like, well, you see how that's a little difficult because this guy's got an enormous camera because he's a television reporter. And I also am going to have to write this while it's happening. And they were like, yeah, you're not special, whatever. Right. That was how they dealt with the media during that 2016 campaign. I had to cover all that stuff. And, um, I remember I went to this Hillary Clinton event in Durham and it was at this traditionally black high school. It might've been Hillside high school. I'm trying to remember the name of the high school, this like traditionally black high school that she, she was at. And, um, there were these questions that reporters and, you know, Democrats on the ground had for Bernie Sanders, which is like, why, when you come through here, are you going to the Greensboro Coliseum? Why don't you go to you know, some black neighborhood, you're not doing very well with black people in the South. And I had one of his uh, surrogates, uh, one of the people from his campaign say to my face, we don't like to pander like that. We don't, we don't have to do that. She has to do that. We don't have to do that. Right. I'm like, yeah, you don't have to win either. Like that's not a foregone conclusion. You, you got to come through and speak to the constituencies you're not doing that well with, and you're not doing that. And we know Mark, Mark Walker had a great comment the other day also where he was saying, um, he was talking about why he spends time in different areas. Mm -hmm. And his feeling was, if you're comfortable with your message, why wouldn't you go out and talk to other people and get, have that dialogue and learn what they're thinking and um, in turn, you know, tell them what you're thinking in a conversational, non-threatening way. Yeah. You also got to have the skills though. That's the thing. Yeah. Mark There's Walker, some people that don't have that where, yeah. you know, they, they want to be in their echo chamber 
they can't handle conflict or when they do, it just becomes like, well, let me just beat them up and just be very aggressive. hundred percent. And it, it takes a different skill set to find that common ground or like with Ben Shapiro, I think he found some common ground with people, but he also was just kind of, you know, doing a little fencing and dancing around them. Yeah. Um, there, there's with Ben Shapiro. What strikes me is he's obviously a really smart guy who really has rhetorical skills and if he was interested in building bridges, he might be able to build bridges. I think he's primarily interested in like being right and being a provocateur. I mean, you could also get up there and say all the things he said about transgender people and how you think that they're mentally ill and that they're potential child molesters and all this stuff. You like you you can you can say all of that stuff if you wanted to. Um and also figure out the best possible way to put a spin on that that would uh, get some people who are in the middle or not so sure or whatever, but instead he gets up there and he makes jokes about the LGBTQ plus minus divided ampersand community and, yeah. you know, and all this stuff. And when he meets transgender, transgender woman, he calls her sir, right? Like that shit. And it's like, the, the, that's like, he's interested in the face, interested in offending people a, because he thinks those people should be offended and B because he knows people who like him love that shit. Right. Now, I was surprised when someone asked him basically, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And his answer was, he said, it's one of the more controversial topics out there. And if you say basically the things he's saying, you could be canceled or trolled out there. Mm-hmm. As and evidenced so, by how canceled he's been, as as evidenced by how canceled Dave Chappelle has been, yeah, right. as evidenced by how canceled Mel Gibson has been, as evidenced by yeah. Well, but I think for I most mean, people it would be right. I mean, most people I mean, who, there's a, but anybody. So let's say a uh, let's say you started making these comments uh-huh. out there. I think you know you might get canceled pretty quickly and but not have we, a job in reporting. Let, right? let let's interrogate that. What do we mean by canceled? Do you mean that I'd lose my job at Policy Watch? Well, or possibly in journalism overall. There are people who work for Carolina Journal right now who say that shit. Like, okay. Yes. You know. Well, you'd have to. Yeah. You'd have to. Right. Or I could work. I could, I could work yeah. for the Daily Wire. I could. You know, if I'm Dennis Miller, for instance, a name to conjure with at this point, but a, a real big comedian of my youth, right? And I undergo a political transformation where now I'm saying a bunch of conservative stuff that I wouldn't have said five years ago. Uh, do I get canceled? Dennis Miller's doing fine. He's doing different things, but he's doing fine. He's still a millionaire. He can still sell out wherever he plays. Dave Chappelle gets up and says his shit on Netflix, right? What do they do? They pay him tens of millions of dollars and they give him another special. He wins awards. People give him standing ovations. Oh, or South Park or. Well, yeah, South Park. Sure. How many different groups does South Park offended? Absolutely. Yeah. So like when we say canceled, I always, I always ask people like, Honestly, not because I'm trying to be an asshole. What do you mean by that? Like, what is the, what is the, what is the real consequence of saying a controversial thing? It's what my mom, my my mother said to me when I was 12 years old, right? Some people might think you're an asshole. They might not want to listen to you anymore and they might not want to talk to you anymore, but you know, who's going to want to listen to and talk to you? The people who agree with that stuff. And that's an enormous audience. Joe Rogan is doing fine. You know, so Neil Young is mad at him. Who gives a shit? Did I cancel my Spotify subscription? I did. Do they care? No, absolutely not. Let me go to title. You know why? Joe Rogan's got the biggest podcast audience of anybody, right? Or uh, I'm trying to think of the the other examples that, well, Ben Shapiro is a great example, right? I mean, like that's his shtick. That's that's his audience or whatever. But is he playing to niche audiences? No, he's writing New York Times bestselling books. He's got an enormous podcast. His his uh his, his YouTube channel's got like four million subscribers. He's got almost four million Twitter followers, right? 
I mean, he's doing fine. I'm not, you know. Yeah, and, and I do think, you know, there's some people out there that have used this. Um, they're, again, a provocateur to an extreme. And they're saying things to really just rile up the other side out yeah. there. I think most of us, uh, myself included, are more hospitable and don't go out there, you know, each day thinking, how can I? piss somebody off or really go after them. And to the extent I can accommodate someone, um, then I certainly want to. And I don't, you know, I wouldn't choose if someone um, identified a certain way and they wanted me to um, speak to them in a certain manner. I don't have any problem with that. It doesn't sure. hurt me one bit. So, right. Good for you. I mean, I can do that or I can accommodate someone in a different way. And it's, right. um, you know, I think there are certain civilities out there that can be afforded. And I think some of the civilities both on the right and the left are going away and it's just hostilities. Uh, what was your fa- what was your family like growing up? You, you grew up around here, right? Yeah. So w- were they conservative or were they, was it my mixed? dad's, so um, my grandfather's from Greece uh, from uh, Saloniki. CODIS. And, yeah. CODIS yeah, yeah. Uh, got shortened pretty substantially uh, when he came over I was in the restaurant business and um, my dad uh, went to high school, did not go to college. Uh, My mom went through college at UNCG and master's program as an accompanist. Back when it was the women's college, I'll bet. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and she taught uh, some at A&T. She was one of the founders of the Music Academy in North Carolina. So I've had a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds around me um, you Don't know, you some of my norm? close friends in junior high were Ken Jung, the comedian, was a good friend of mine, and James Cheek. And so I had, I've always surrounded myself with um, people that I like, and it doesn't matter their demographic or their financial status. It's um, it's just, do I think they're nice people to be with? I think if with? you're lucky enough to come up that way it's an enormous advantage because when I was a kid, I didn't always feel like it was an advantage. So I grew up in uh, most of my young life in Eastern North Carolina, right? I grew up in, I always like to say, I grew up in trailer parks. I grew up on military bases and I grew up in trailer parks that were on military bases. That's where we lived. And um, the, you know, my mother's people were commercial fishermen and Navy folks. Um, some of them virulent racists um, who were from down East North Carolina and they don't want any dark people in that area, um, you know, and, and are open about it. Um, and there's a, there's a picture of my grandfather who I loved dearly and uh, miss every day uh, in his Navy uniform when he's a young man uh, surrounded by other white people holding up a Confederate flag um, on their Navy base. Um, and he did not attend and would not attend my mother's marriage to my dad because he's Puerto Rican. Right. Um, and my family, when I was growing up is such a mix of things. There are Puerto Rican people, there are white people, there are Dominican people, there are black people, there are gay people, there are trans people, there are straight people, there are religious people, there are atheists growing up in that environment at the time did not feel like an advantage because I, I mean, I literally would have kids uh, like use the N word about my family at school and I would just have to put up with it, you know? Um, and I, uh, you know, I, parts of my family didn't get along that my, 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 uh, dad's Puerto Rican family did not like my mother cause she was white. Didn't, didn't want their kids marrying white people. 
right? Of course, they were also Puerto Rican and didn't want their kids marrying Dominican people, you know, and, and some of them married into Dominican families. But it's just like, you know, the, the like it was it was a constant roiling conversation and conflict about identity and politics. Um, there were people who were strong Republicans, people who were Democrats, people who don't really didn't really have a political affiliation, probably didn't vote their entire lives, you know, um, and growing up like that, I think was an enormous help for me being a reporter, because when I talk to somebody like Mark Walker, who I've had to talk to many, many times, like he and I have political differences and we might have religious differences and things like that. Doesn't bother me. I grew up with that my whole life. You know, I could, I could sit down and have dinner with Ben Shapiro tomorrow, right? We disagree strongly. I mean, my best friend is a trans person. I got trans people in my family. He thinks that they're mentally ill and that they shouldn't, they're, they're part of a social contagion and, you know, and all this stuff. Uh, I could sit down and have a meal with him tomorrow, no problem, and talk about all sorts of other things. But there are two things at play here. One is that I was raised in a really diverse you know, family and environment. And I experienced that conflict growing up and I'm not afraid of it. The other thing is it's low stakes for me because I'm not a trans person. Yeah. And I, I think also, you know, when you're, when you're in a sheltered environment or in a bubble out there, what, you know, whether it's um, a certain background you came from or another, and, and you only are exposed to one viewpoint, I think that's a problem because then you aren't comfortable being around other viewpoints and having that discussion. Um, I think two things make people comfortable in potentially contentious situations. One, they can have a level of civility and have some manners around other people and not just jump to, they dis- disagree with me, let's go slap them in the face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second is they're, they're knowledgeable about their topic. And so they don't feel that. um, I think sometimes when people don't know enough about something, that's when they jump to quick jabs and base insults instead of, you know, debating the topic, because if you know what you're talking about, then you can have that conversation. You're not rattled. I think that's true. Um, But when you have just a, when you're not exposed to a lot of different viewpoints, then when you're around something new, and if you're around viewpoints where they vilify someone with a different view, I think that just results in more of this conflict out there. And and that's one of the reasons that I'm concerned in the university system right now that we're there's a resistance like Brian Clary writing an article saying Ben Shapiro shouldn't come to campus because I think that was Sayaka. Oh, was Sayaka, it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, they wrote they they published that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, you know, attacking a speaker for coming and saying, we don't want a different viewpoint here. What they're saying is, is violence. Well, no, it's not. I mean, there are words that incite violence and then there's things that you disagree with that you say it could be harmful to someone's psyche if they're saying that. And I get that some people could take what he's saying and say that that could result in um, trans folks having uh, a more difficult path or not being accepted as much. So I, I get that part of it. I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of that whole line of commentary. You know, I'm not standing up clapping about those sorts of things, but that's not really my, my bent. I'm more, you know, fiscal conservative and libertarian in my mind. If people want to live their lives, however they want to live their lives. Great. You know, don't, uh, don't infringe on mine and I don't want to infringe on yours. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the, I, I know Sayaka a little bit. We're not like best friends or anything, but um, she went to UNCG. I went to UNCG. We're, we're years apart. Obviously she's much younger than I am. Um, 
And when I read that, I, I had two thoughts. I don't agree with this. Like, I don't agree that the university, for, for practical reasons and also for philosophical reasons, I don't think the university should have prevented him from speaking on campus. First of all, I don't think that they can. Like, they would be in enormous legal trouble if they said, because of your political viewpoint, we would like to not have you on campus. We're going to bar you from being on campus. I mean, that's been adjudicated. That's not that's not on the table anymore. Like, Unfortunately, most of the UNC schools right now are a green rating from fire. Yeah. And probably only, I think there's only three that are yellow uh, that are all working towards green. So, right. you know, that's a, that's a great thing in my opinion. I don't have to agree with what someone else says, yeah. but at least I, you know, I'm not going to go worry about trying to shut them down. But the interesting thing about that is when I read what Sayaka had to write and tried city beat about, about Ben Shapiro, um, I thought I, d- I don't agree with this. I didn't agree with it when I was at UNCG. Like what happened when I was at UNCG is when people were upset about Tristan Terramino, I thought, how silly, why don't you come and listen to what she has to say? And when Mike Adams came and people were upset about Mike Adams being there, I said, I, how silly, why don't you come and see what he has to say? Which I did. I sat through Mike Adams's lecture. I talked to him afterward. The, the um, you know, and that's kind of the same way I felt about Ben Shapiro. It's like, I, because I've, I've heard bits of him and seen him on television and read things he's written. I had a strong sense of what he had to say. And it wasn't like, I was like, I wonder what this is going to be. I kind of knew what it was going to be, but it's different to go there and see the people who are there, see why they're there. I I described the audience as diverse on Twitter and people got mad because they're like, look at these pictures. It's mostly white people. And I was like, yeah, it is mostly white people, but it's diverse in terms of age. It's diverse in terms of ideology because I stuck around and talked to people and there were a bunch of people who were like, I don't disagree. I don't agree with anything this guy said, but I had to come and listen. Right. And people who were like, he's great. We love him. Right. Like that's a type of diversity. And it was actually more racially diverse than I thought it was going to be. I mean, like I would say like, I don't know, I wouldn't want to be wrong about this, but a number of the speakers who got up there and asked him questions were black. Right. And I thought this could be an all white room very easily. Right. Um, and so like it it was more diverse than I was expecting it to be, but that's also because not everybody who was there was there to support him. There were people who were there for the reasons that you go to things in college because it's different because you want to get exposed to something else because perhaps you want to see how the enemy thinks, you know, uh, you know, and I do think some of the people that attended, um, clearly weren't in favor of what he was saying. Yeah. Um, and I think you read that by, so let's say someone was in favor of what he's saying they were clapping. Mm-hmm. If they weren't in favor, maybe they weren't clapping. But then also when he was speaking about a, something he disagreed with, then those that agreed with that particular item would clap on that to show that they were part of this um, divergent thinking from what he was putting forward. And I thought that was a very respectful way to communicate that there were a couple hundred people in there that felt differently right. um, and were you know, we're clapping when most of the people weren't clapping because, you know, he was citing some other viewpoint. Another thing that separates a guy like Ben Shapiro from a guy like Trump, I mean, A, they're not, one of them not run for office, that helps, right? But, but is that there was this moment, I don't know if you remember, a guy got up who was clearly a Ben Shapiro fan. He was there and agreeing with him on most everything. He got up and he said, you know, there are these people who are pro-abortion and they're bragging about killing babies. And they're just bragging all, you know, they're like, I killed a baby. And they're, and, they're, and Ben Shapiro stopped him. And he was like, first of all, I don't think so. Yeah. Like, I, I think that if you are hearing anybody saying I'm, I'm bragging about killing a baby, that must be an extreme minority because people who are having abortions, which I'm against, they've been convinced it's not murder. They've been convinced they're not killing anything, that it's a, it's a collection of cells or whatever. And that's how he dealt with that question. I'm on the same page you are. I'm against abortion. However, 
your assertion about these people who are pro-choice is incorrect. And that reminded me of that famous moment with John McCain when John McCain was running for for president and this old woman gets up at his rally and says, I'm worried about Barack Obama. He's a he's a what did she say terrorist or he's a Muslim or something like that. And and he goes, no, ma'am, no, he's a good family man. He's a nice person. He, He and I just have some political differences. Thank you very much. Takes the mic away from her. Right. No way Trump does that. No way Trump does that. He does not tell that guy that he's wrong about people bragging about killing babies. In fact, Trump is probably like, I know it. It's terrible. Right. Yeah, you know, those, right. those awful people in no way he corrects anybody saying a nasty thing about Barack Obama, whether it's correct or not, he doesn't do that. Right. So like, I think that Ben Shapiro's uh, intellectual honesty in that moment, there are things about which I think Ben Shapiro is not particularly intellectually honest, but the, but in that moment, I think he recognized that, it's going to be bad for me, bad for my position, bad for everybody. If I let this person say this thing that clearly isn't true, we're taping it tomorrow. People are going to go, what thing? Why did Ben Shapiro allow that to happen? Why didn't he disagree with it or whatever? So he wins some points with people who are, you know, maybe not on his exact page by at least saying the the craziness that you're saying is not accurate. Here's the accurate thing you should be saying in order to be anti-abortion and win. And I think he also acknowledged when um, people were asking him questions where they were disagreeing with him, if they had a valid point, he conceded that rather than pushing back on everything that they said. Right. And again, I think that's just more intellectual honesty. I, I don't view it as strategic um, or marketing wise. I think he's just intellectually honest. And if he feels a certain way, he's not going to change his thinking because of what somebody else has just said in order to win them over. Well, he's not going to change his thinking, even if the American medical association or the American psychiatric association disagrees with him. So he's certainly not going to be swayed by some boob who gets up in the audience and says a dumb thing. Absolutely. The, but I think that people who are, it's, it's back to what you said. Like if you have confidence in your worldview and if you have confidence in your, uh, your intellect and you have confidence in your knowledge of something, you're a lot less likely to, just go with the flow or get defensive or do a dumb thing that will make you look like you're less in control when you're giving a speech, answering a question, you know, things like that. I mean, my, the, the other thing is, and this is like, I think a, a thing journalism has taught me over and over again, which makes it um, a healthy thing for me, journalism. There's a lot of shit I don't know. There's a lot of shit I don't know. And some of it is stuff that I don't know because I'm not particularly learned in those areas. Some of it is stuff that I don't know because I probably should know that, but I don't know it yet. And and not knowing is the first step to knowing. Going, yeah, I agree. Now, I think it's it's important. The most important words I'm going to say is I don't know when they're having a discussion because then that's being honest. When people try and fake it, right? then you're like, well, this person's a bullshitter. And you know, if they're going to bullshit on that, then they're going to bullshit on everything else right. too. So um, I think acknowledging when you don't know something or you're not the expert and also being open to other ideas. And also changing your mind. Yeah, changing your mind. Uh, years ago, um, I saw Bill Maher and Bill, like <laughs> I got problems with Bill Maher, of course, too. But the, but one of the things that I remember him saying, saying that really stuck with me was when in this country did it become such a bad thing to change your mind? If you're a politician now and you're in a different, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're in a different place uh, on a political issue than you were 10 years ago. Good for you. You know what I mean? Who wants to be the same person they were when they were 20 years old on anything, right? But if you change your mind on, you know, 
any number of things uh, that our political doctrine or even small points of trade policy or whatever in this country. There are attack ads and you're being told that you're a hypocrite. Well, look at this video from 20 years ago where he said the opposite thing. Yeah. You know what happened in the meantime? 20 years passed. You know, I mean, that's the that's a that's a crazy thing. I think about my own mother. You know, um, she killed herself uh, some years back. Oh gosh. Yeah. And um, she, you know, she had mental health struggles. And, um, but one of the things that I was really proud of my mother for over the course of her life was she came a long way on gay and lesbian and transgender people. And her sister is a lesbian. My, my sister, who is her daughter, is a lesbian. Uh, there are transgender people and gay people who she loves dearly who are in our family, but her position was in her younger years. And by younger years, I don't mean when she was a teenager. I mean, when I was a kid (laughs) was like they're sinners (laughs) and they're backward and it's a problem, but we're going to try and love them anyway. Right. And it, and it came to, I love you. I love that you love this person. I've watched this relationship that you have with this person last for years and years and years while I myself have gotten divorced. While you know, while other people have gotten divorced, you're raising healthy children together who turn into stellar adults. And I acknowledge that. And that's wonderful. And like, but, but it took her years and decades to get there, but she got there, she moved. And, um, and, and I think that, um, demonizing that you know turning like i grew i had experiences i met people i thought about things the society changed a little bit and i decided maybe i was wrong 5 10 15 20 years ago is okay it's laudable i'm not where i was on any number of political issues when i was 18 19 20 years old um now unfortunately i was writing columns back then so you can look them up and see how wrong i was um but uh you know the, that's what lou reed called growing up in public um you know uh, uh but uh the you know it's like but i but i'm not embarrassed about any of that because i wouldn't want to be the person i was when i was 21 years old exactly yeah so um Speaking of Susan King and Hussman and the journalism school, that has been a um, huge part of your reporting uh, over the last year. Yeah. And so, you know, there's some parts of that that I can't talk about because I'm on the board of trustees and there's still threatened uh, legal action out there, but um, just in general, and I, and I didn't, joined the board of trustees until July one, which was after all of this had been somewhat resolved. Um, But I was in there watching the antics on the 30th. You were at that final meeting, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, Observing everything. And um, I mean, that, that whole thing, it it just feels like there could have been steps that were taken earlier on that could have avoided a lot of this. And, and Top to I bottom. will we'll place a little bit of blame on Susan King on that too, because I think there are things that she could have done as well. Um, you know, you've got in the different cast of characters out there, you have uh, Mr. Hussman who uh, was generous and gave $20 million to the school. Pledged I believe, 25 million. Yeah. Or pledged 25. And um, also was very, interested in supporting the school and conveying his values that I guess show up in his paper, all of his papers Mm -hmm. 
kind of a list of journalistic core values and had communicated that to the school. And I, I guess when he was doing all that, they must've bought into that. Right. I mean, I don't think he gave the money and they said no. Um, Well, it's interesting because what, and I got to get into this a little bit with uh, Susan King in the, in the piece that I just wrote. Um, So Hussman's core values are a, a staple of the newspapers that he owns in Arkansas and other states. Uh, All of his company's papers print this core value statement. And as part of the donor agreement for his pledge of $25 million, he he got a few things. One is it's now called the Hussman School, UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. The other is he wanted that value statement etched in stone on the wall of the school. And they agreed to that. Now, Nowhere and was Susan part of those? Yes, she, she signed the donor agreement. She agreed to that, yes, and was very happy to because that's the largest gift that school has ever gotten, right? Uh, and also, it should be said, Walter Hussman is an alum of UNC's journalism school um, and very connected to it and uh, always has been and has been a big supportive uh, you know, donor and uh, an alum. You're an alum of UNC yourself. Chapel I am, yeah. yeah. Being in Flagler School and Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones went to the J School for her master's. Yeah. That's right. And so um, the so what, they, what he got was you will etch this in stone on the on the wall of the journalism school and they said yes uh we, we'd be happy to do that we have uh we have uh in the carroll hall in the journalism school we have multiple displays of uh journalism statements and the first amendment and pulitzers that people have won and things from our alum and our alumni and we'd be happy to do that um now what didn't happen was that the school itself, the journalism school said, these are our values. That is not a vote that was taken or a statement that was made, but Walter Hussman decided that that is what had happened. And he went on television and said so on Tucker Carlson's show. He wrote op-eds. He said, they have adopted my values. Those are the values of the school. This came as an enormous surprise to the faculty and the students and the people who make up the school who were like, really, did we? And if you read that value statement, I actually think it's a really good value statement, right? There's not a whole lot in there that I would disagree with or quibble with in any way. I think it's a little too long. Um, and as a newsman myself, I think it could use some editing. Um, but, uh, but the, the problem with that value statement is, is twofold. One, it's that Hussman decided and willed into being that it, that those are not just the values that he espouses. And because of his generous donation, they're on the wall in his alma mater. He's decided that those are the values of the school and has publicly said so. The other thing that is sort of a problem is that Hussman defines those values. He interprets those values in a very specific way, which is to say that when he talks about, uh, he doesn't use the word objectivity. He likes the word, um, uh, oh, why is it escaping me? Uh, but it's essentially objectivity. He, he says that you should be, uh, you know, you should have a journalistic distance from, from, you know, these journalistic integrity. Well, integrity is different, I think, because integrity is about honesty and, and uh, keeping your word and, and all of that. What he's saying is you should stand outside of conflict. You should stand outside of, of, of uh, public conflict. You shouldn't make statements about political things. And when I worked at the news and record, that was also the case at the news and record. When you, if you worked at the news and record as a reporter, you were not allowed to put, 
uh, a bumper sticker on your car. You're not allowed to give to political candidates. You're not allowed to put a sign in your yard, right? And I never had any problem with that because I'm not the kind of guy anyway. You're not going to find any bumper stickers on my car, even for bands I like, right? Uh, like I, I'm not given to giving money to political candidates. I, I, I would give money to charitable causes that I like, but not to people. Uh, so even now when I'm not under those strictures, I don't do that. I don't donate to candidates. I don't uh, put bumper stickers on my car. You're not going to find a sign outside of my uh, house. Uh, that's just the guy I am, right? But uh, with, with Hussman, uh, his value statement, the way that he interprets it, he says, I don't think that, I wonder if Nicole Hannah-Jones agrees with these values. Her career would 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 uh, indicate to me that she doesn't agree with these values. And when you ask him why, and I had the opportunity to do that in an interview, um, he says some things that are a little strange for, uh, for, uh, journalism. I mean, it's, it's a continuing conversation in journalism, but for instance, Walter Hussman doesn't think that people who are newspaper reporters should write books. He thinks that that is compromising your objectivity that, that you're going to, if you turn your, your daily newspaper reporting into a larger book that you're eventually going to make commentary or you're going to turn it into a narrative and that's going to queer the whole thing. And you, you know, it's just, it's not a good practice. Well, you know, who disagrees with that is Bob Woodward. You know, who disagrees with that is David Marinus of the Washington post. Who's written books about Bill Clinton in his backyard and Walter Hussman's backyard in Arkansas that are terrific, especially if you hate Bill Clinton. Um, you know, uh, James B. Stewart of the wall street journal who wrote the wonderful Clinton whitewater book, uh, uh, blood sport, which everybody should read, especially if you hate the Clintons. Um, you know, there's a lot of fresh meat in there for you. Um, and so that's just a, that's just a, a, a narrow definition that he has that I think is partially to do with his own experience in newspaper journalism, right? He's not a long form journalism guy. He does easy, you know, he doesn't write for magazines. He doesn't, well, he doesn't do any real journalistic writing anymore, but he, um, you know, he's not, he's not a, a guy who has written a book. Uh, he's, you know, he's not a guy who's, who's done those things. And so his, his conception comes from his roots in his family's newspaper business. He thinks this is how it should be, which is fine. You can think that, can you enforce that on other people? Can you make that a litmus test for hires at the UNC Hussman school? For instance, if you don't like what Nicole Hannah Jones has done, are you within your rights to lobby against her as he did with multiple people uh, privately while saying at the same time, I'm a journalist. I have to stand outside of public controversy. I can't possibly make a public comment about the Nicole Hannah Jones thing and then privately email people to try to, uh, you know, uh, affect the outcome. That is where the, that is where the controversy lies. That's, that's where, that's where there's an argument even within journalism about, so he's a, that. I mean, he's a donor, the largest donor to that school. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got core values and it seems like there's a, uh, a miscommunication there when he says, I want these values etched in stone and, and stuck on your four year when you walk in, uh, saying this is a husband's school. Um, he thought that meant the school was adopting it. They thought, no, we're just describing what Hussman's values are, but they're not necessarily our values. Well, yeah, because if you walk into this, have you ever been to Carroll Hall at UNCG? Yeah. Or, well, I'm sorry, back when UNC. I was in the business school. Have you been recently? Have you, been, have you been recently? Yeah. 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 So this is fascinating. And I, I'm writing a book right now and, and this is a scene in the book. Um, when you walk into Carroll Hall at UNC, which I did for the first time last year, right? <laughs> Cause I didn't go to UNC. So, um, 
when you walk in, you will see Walter Hussman's values uh, on, on the right side. Now, right now it's not etched in stone because for a variety of reasons, they haven't been able to do that yet. It's a, it's sort of like, sort of like this. It's a, it's a fresco essentially of his values. And um, then over here on your left, you will see the Pulitzer prize that was awarded to, I believe it's the Tabor city times. I could have that wrong, but I think that's right. Small town newspaper in North Carolina for its crusade against the KKK. Right. So on one side, you have Walter Hussman saying journalism is not about crusades. We don't take sides, especially on contentious political issues like, for instance, the KKK and segregation in the 50s and 60s. And then on the other side, you see the Pulitzer that was awarded to these people for their newspaper crusade against one side of a contentious political issue in the South in its time. Right. So it's this it is depending upon how you look at it is either cognitive dissonance or. Or that's just America, man. Like you got these people who believe these things and you got these people who believe these things and there's room for all of it. And um, I think the faculty there kind of believe both things. First of all, the faculty's not all on one page. Like some of them are, are very strongly in favor of not only Hussman's statement, but his interpretation of it. And others say, well, journalism has its own set of values. And we need to have a conversation about what objectivity means, you know, like, because a lot of over the course of many decades in American journalism, objectivity meant, uh, the view from nowhere. (laughs) Like it meant, you know, we're, we're trying to stay outside of these things. Well, if you're outside of things while injustices are happening, that's something of a problem. Um, and so Nicole Hannah Jones, you know, she's had a fascinating career because like me, she came from a background where there weren't professional writers, where there weren't professional journalists. There was not a, 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 a road that was paved for her. And she went to Notre Dame. She went to UNC for grad school. She became very successful and inspired by her time at UNC. And she still has a great affection for the school. When she, she was, um, she received a full scholarship for that, right? So she was. Um, I wouldn't swear to that, but I, but I know that she has been. I mean, she she is academically well suited, and so it wouldn't surprise me to hear that. But the, but she while there, uh, you know, uh, became a became who she is. You know, she began to flower like many of us do in in higher education environments, where we are wanted and 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 uh, feel supported, and she. Um, worked her way up from, I believe somebody told me the other day, she worked for the high point enterprise for a little while. Really? I haven't been able to confirm that, but, but somebody who I think would know said that, but she also worked for the Chapel Hill news, very small organization, right? Then she worked for the news and observer and she, she kept working her way up until she was at the New York times. And now she's a New York times bestselling author and, you know, and, and all of this. So, over the course of her career, she had a lot of experiences that Walter Hussman didn't have. And I don't just mean that she was a woman in journalism. And I don't just mean that she was a black woman in journalism. I mean that she practiced other types of journalism. She wrote a lot of daily newspaper stories like I did, like Walter Hussman did when he was younger. She also wrote long form magazine pieces. She wrote political analysis. She wrote opinion pieces. People tend to forget that the Pulitzer that she won is for an opinion piece, right? Uh, She wrote investigative pieces. She did a lot of different types of things, all of which are under the umbrella of journalism. Walter Hussman's idea about journalism is it should be 
basically what I do in my daily newspapers. And his problem with the Golana Jones is a couple fold. One, he has problems as do a lot of people with the 1619 project. And he thinks that there are historical inaccuracies as do some historians. Um, and he also took issue with an essay that she wrote about reparations to black people in America. Um, and these are the things that we know that he objected to because we have his emails. Um, what he said in private phone conversations, who can say, but those are the things that are on record. And so I think it's basically this fascinating story, which is one of the reasons why I began writing about it. It's this fascinating story about two people who are generations apart, who are different genders, who are different races, who are both journalists and who have differing ideas about journalism, which is itself, as we talked about earlier in this conversation, undergoing something of an evolution, not only in the delivery methods, not only in how we pay for it, not only in how it's presented to us, but also in what journalism is. You know, I've never been the kind of guy who says John Hammer over at the Rhino Times, that's not journalism. Carolina Journal over, you know, John Locke Society's thing, that's not journalism. Policy Watch is journalism. The New York Times is journalism. Fox News, that's not journalism, right? I think it's all journalism. It's all journalism. And discerning adults can tell the difference between the Carolina Journal and Policy Watch, between the New York Times and the Daily Caller, between the Daily Wire and the, you know, the Daily Mail, you know, like discerning adults can tell the difference. And um, the important thing is media literacy. And also another thing that I think has been a, a common theme of this conversation, which is like making up your own mind. Sure. So it's interesting, you know, the uh, Daily Tar Heel just published a, um, a survey, a DEI survey. I saw that. Um, I think today um, where they were going through and showing that their reporting staff was, I think, significantly more uh, Caucasian than UNC as a whole. Yep. Um, and, and good for them for publishing that and acknowledging kind of where they are. Now, I don't believe in quotas and I don't believe you should say we need to have X number of people of this um, background and X number of people, this other, you have to allow for people to have free will and, and there's going to be all kinds of factors come into play. And I don't think you can say, okay, we're reserving X number of seats on the plane for this demographic and this demographic. I mean, it just doesn't. Quotas to me don't make any sense. I think I think they are oversimplification and in fact lead to discrimination. But did you ever in, in and you've researched this a ton, did you ever get the read that anything that Hussman was objecting to or that people in the school were in the university were doing or in the Hussman school were doing were related to race? that any of this was, I think it was related to race, but it's not explicitly about racism. So people forget this part of it too. What they were trying to hire Nicole Hannah Jones for was a night chair. And the night foundation for people who don't know is not just a thing from Knight Rider in the eighties. Um, it's also, you know, yeah. the night foundation is also a, a journalism organization that, um, endows these chairs at universities for specific purposes, right? And so at UNC, there are endowed chairs. Uh, the, the Knight Foundation uh, is part of that process. And, and the, that pays for a portion yes. of the salary, but not the full salary. Right. And so the, the, um, the Knight chair that they were trying to uh, hire, for which they were trying to hire Nicole Hannah-Jones, was a Knight chair in race and journalism, 
right? Now, her journalism, partially because she's a black woman and she has the experiences and life experiences that she has, and also because this is her area of interest. Yep. Backing up for a second. Yeah. Before that, there were two other night chairs before that through the journalism I think school. There were, I, think. I think there might have been as many as three, but there were okay. certainly two. Yes, yes, yes. But those weren't race and investigative journalism before. Right, right. Yeah. This was kind of coming off the heels of BLM movement and there were some criticisms of the journalism school at that time for not being uh, diverse enough as I well. I think there have been criticisms of the journalism school for decades in that, in that area, but you're yeah. right that night chairs. So one of the things that the night foundation does is they, they look at schools and they look at programs and they say, what is it that you guys want to accomplish with this, you know, with this chair. And for this particular instance, they wanted a night chair in race and investigative race and journalism. Right. And so, um, so they pursued Nicole Hannah Jones. She was courted, you know, she, she, they, they brought her in to teach, uh, you know, classes as sort of a tryout and they did all the things you do when you're, uh, trying to hire a tenured chair. And, um, so. And when they brought her in for classes, like a guest lecturer. Yeah. Come in. Right. But she hadn't taught before in other. She'd done like guest lecturing. She'd never been a full-time teacher. No. Yeah. Like I've done guest lecturing. Right. But that's the purpose of a night chair. Actually the, the night chair and the night chairs in journalism are people who are not teachers. So for instance, you ever read Michael Pollan's great book, the, the omnivores dilemma or any of those. So Michael Pollan is a sort of a pop science writer who writes a lot about food. He wrote the omnivores dilemma. He just did this great book about caffeine, which as a caffeine fiend myself, I really appreciate it. Um, he's a night chair, right? But he's not primarily a teacher or trained to be a teacher. They're trying to bring people from the profession into classrooms to, to, for the purposes of teaching so that the students are getting the, the experience of, learning from someone whose experience, whose training is actually doing this thing at a very high level. So, um, that was the idea with this night chair. Uh, and, and that's not, it wasn't, that's not, wasn't not the case with other night chairs. You know, all the night chairs are not primarily teachers. They're people from the profession. So, um, so when they bring Nicole Hannah Jones and you asked, you know, is it related to race? I think it's related to race in that they were looking for somebody who could speak to reporting on racial, racial issues, um, it's not related to race in that they were like, we need to find a black person, right? We need to find a black woman. We need to find a prominent black woman. Um, and also well, I remember reading a, a memo from Susan King that, that did basically say that, that they needed to increase their diversity within the school. And they were going to use um, some uh, waivers that allowed them to hire without having to kind of consider all candidates, but to select one or another. And there's actually like, up to a hundred thousand dollars a year that you can get to support hiring from uh, more diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that that's the case at a lot of schools, not just, I mean, schools at UNC, like schools at the university, but also um, schools within different universities at the UN, UNC system level. Um, but so for, let's pause here for a moment and say, here's why I think that that's actually important. I worked at the news and record for 10 years, right? And over the course of that time, the staff was overwhelmingly white. Um, It was overwhelmingly middle to upper middle class. It was overwhelmingly, you know, professional class. It was overwhelmingly Christian. And the newspaper coverage really reflected that. The the example that I always give that's sort of funny is I remember being in my mid-20s at the News and Record and going to news meetings and 
I would say every or every other news meeting, there would be this longish discussion of, are we going to get a new grocery store? Are we going to get a Trader Joe's? Is it coming to Greensboro? Right. And as a guy who was like 25, 26 years old, I could give a shit if we get a Trader Joe's, right? I still couldn't care. And I'm almost well, clearly told. you haven't shopped for enough frozen food yeah. at Trader Joe's. <laughs> right. Because then you would care. I, and I like, I, I've been to Trader Joe's now and I think it's fine, but <laughs> I'm almost 40 and I still don't care if we get a Trader Joe's, right? But also, I don't think that's the most important issue that the daily newspaper should be dealing with, right? And it was, it was taking up an enormous amount of time and effort. They were right, they were writing multiple stories about the, the rumor that a Trader Joe's might come, right? And I began thinking, why is this happening? And then I realized, because the people who are making decisions about news coverage are people who are middle-class white people or middle or upper-middle-class white people who are very interested in shopping at Trader Joe's. They don't like that they have to go all the way to Chapel Hill to do it. But what are the demographics of the reader? So when you were working at the News and Record, who were your readers? Well, I think at that time, they were overwhelmingly white and older. Yeah, and And I think- Presumably, they had more disposable income if they're signing up for a subscription, which is not, I mean, what we see sometimes when we see people- um, you know, I've had discussions with um, Goldie Wells and Sharon Hightower mm-hmm. both about why retailers choose certain areas. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with demographics because you can go to Atlanta, and, I mean, or nothing to do with race. Mm-hmm. Because you can go to Atlanta and you see plenty of stores in various areas or other minority majority cities with significant wealth. But what they do look at is disposable income. And so if they go into an area and someone's making, let's say, $25,000 and, you know, that's barely enough then to pay for the base needs, they're not able to shop at a Trader Joe's maybe. And so, you know, a lot of times these higher income, the Starbucks of the world and other places are going where they've got people with higher income because they can afford their services Right. Uh, for more of these luxury items that, you know, aren't in, you don't have, well, I have to have coffee every day, whether or not I have to have Starbucks coffee, you know, I don't have to have it. I, I would drink if I were stuck with Maxwell no House. other choice, I would drink whatever sort of coffee. I wouldn't care what it tastes like. Just exactly. for my caffeine fix. But my thought back then was, and it still is today. Maybe, maybe that, uh, maybe that discussion about, are we going to get a Trader Joe's? Maybe those multiple stories about, are we going to get a Trader Joe's? Maybe that's a better story for the business journal. Like, is that really what we need to be devoting resources to when we only have so many resources? Couldn't we be doing, as we talked about earlier, investigative pieces into government or corruption in, you know, the following thing or environmental reporting or court reporting or any number of things. We really need to write another story about Trader Joe's. And I think it just reflected the, it reflected the concerns of the people who are making the decisions. And, um, and I saw that again and again and again. In not only not only the news and record, I don't pick on the news and record too much. Um, you know, I, I worked at the Cape Cod Times, I worked at the Bristol Press, I've written for other papers. You know, I, like, and I I found it again and again and again. Your coverage will look like the people who are in your newsroom, not only at the top but also in the middle and at the bottom. So if you don't happen to have any black reporters, you're missing an important voice in your community, particularly if you have a significant number of black people who are just going to see things you're not going to see. You know what I mean? Like they're just going to see the world in a different way. 
And I think that's important. And it's also true of having, you know, gay people, having Republicans, having Democrats, having, you know. I think that's a great point, Joe. I think the viewpoint diversity out there is critical. And that may be socioeconomic, that may be racial, that may be gender where you're providing different views Mm -hmm. and you almost need like a advisory board of sorts to look at some of these papers and when newspapers were healthier, they had ombudsmen. Yeah. And that's, that's becoming, uh, you know, increasingly rare, but they used to have these positions for people who don't know called ombudsman. And it would be a position that essentially is the advocate for the community with the newspaper. You know, if the community has some sort of problem with the newspaper, they go to the ombudsman and say, I got this problem. And then the ombudsman can, can go to them or they can write something and say, here's how we're dealing with this issue with the newspaper. As newspapers have shrunk, of course, that's one of many things that's sort of gone away. So at NC policy watch. Yeah. What are the demographics like there? So there's, so we have a pretty small staff because we're a nonprofit and we're a pretty small newsroom, but there's me, right? There's Lynn Bonner, former reporter for the News and Observer. She's black. There's uh, Greg Childress, who's a former reporter for the Durham Herald Sun. He's black. There's Lisa Sorg, who is white. So it's like two black people, two white people. Uh, Rob Schofield is white. Um, we occasionally have like contributors from the community who write columns and things like that, but they're not on staff. And what are the, what are the different beats? So what is, what is the NC policy watch cover? So, uh, I don't have a beat. I'm, I'm sort of an, I'm an investigative reporter is more senior investigative reporter is my, my technical title. And so I could conceivably write about anything, but, um, in practical terms, I write about, a couple of coverage areas in which I'm most interested. And the UNC system became one of those for a couple of reasons. One is that it is, I think people in North Carolina do not realize the reach and the scope and the size of the UNC system. It is all over the state from the mountains to the coast. It affects an enormous number of people's lives, be they students or faculty or staff or people who benefit from having those things in their community. So that became sort of an interest area of mine. So but but I don't have a beat. I'm an investigative reporter. I could conceivably write about anything. Lynn Bonner is the same way. She's an investigative reporter sort of, um, you know, without portfolio. She can write about just about anything. She has interest areas. Uh, health is an interest area of hers, particularly um, she's written, uh, she won awards at the News and Observer for her coverage of uh, black maternal health. Um, Greg Childress covers K through 12 um, reporting. Lisa Sorg is an environmental reporter um up until a little while ago we had a a reporter who covered just courts um melissa bouton who won awards doing that and was incredible but unfortunately got out of the journalism business um and we're hiring right now um so we're hopeful to bring in another person to to cover that area um so courts k through 12 environment and then investigative stuff not that we're not all doing investigative stuff but those are those are sort of beat areas that we cover sure yeah so um when you're writing about these different things, you're looking for is the, I mean, so how much are you celebrating, let's say success? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, cause I know you write about the, uh, the boy scouts, you know, leading a fundraiser that, you know, solve something, you know, it's not the dirty laundry that a yes. lot of people want to read. How much is there, you know, dirty laundry versus, yeah positive stories out there just in the media overall in all journalism, you know, the Don Henley 
dirty laundry yes, song. Yes. In all journalism, there is a bias toward conflict. There is a bias toward, uh, as you say, dirty laundry. There's a bias toward bleeds uh, at leads. Yes, yeah. exactly. I was a cops and court reporter for years. I can tell you, we gave a lot more column inches to somebody got shot than somebody got saved. Um, that, that is, you know, that, that has always been the case and it is a problem, I think, uh, in, in journalism in general. Um, I will say that, uh, I have been recently concentrating on metrics. I've been looking at what our audience reads, what our audience shares online. And I am happy to tell you that last week I wrote a story about the board of governors raising the cap on out of state admissions for HBCUs, which I think the Board of Governors would tell you is a positive move and a positive story. And it got an enormous amount of audience attention. It got an enormous amount of shares on Facebook, on Twitter. It got an enormous amount of uh, or number of uh, unique reads. Um, and people were really talking about it. So I think that's evidence that you can write about stuff that's, you know, quote unquote positive. Everybody's, everybody's, uh, complaint about journalism is just not enough positive stuff. You can write about stuff that people think is positive. Uh, and I think most people would agree that in the case of HBCUs in North Carolina, anyway, in the, in the UNC system, raising that cap is a positive thing because I think all of them can demonstrate that they are already accepting the number of qualified in-state students that they can. And so nobody's going to be excluded by, also letting other people come to our very fine HBCUs. You know, um, and generally in the past, I have always said, you know, the university exists to provide the benefits of the university to the people of the state. Mm -hmm. And I'm very focused on making sure that every North Carolinian that wants to go one, to, wants to go to one of our schools has that opportunity out mm -hmm. there. Now I did vote um, for the last increase in the HBCU enrollment because they presented a different set of data. And what they said was, look, our students used to just come to these schools. Now they're going to Carolina and they're going to state and going to other schools. And we're, we're running out of the most qualified people to attend our schools. And so it's not that, that we're, they don't have a place. They have a place. They're just choosing, let's say, between A&T and state. Some may choose A&T, some may choose state, but there's less applicants overall and so in order to keep the standards up, they need to allow um, applicants from other states to apply. Well, and except for except for Central, which saw a, a modest decrease in the number of um, students who are attending over the between 2019 and now, um, every HBCU in North Carolina has seen a uh, every HBCU in the North Carolina system in the UNC system has seen an increase in in people who are attending, um, in, in actual students. Um, and some of those are dramatic, like uh, A&T, right here in Greensboro. And Elizabeth City State, too. Yeah, and Elizabeth City State, which has come up from a low. Because of NC Promise. That's right. Well. NC Promise has been a huge deal, especially for HBCUs. Um, and as somebody- And I remember James Anderson at, at Fayetteville State complaining, uh, Chancellor Anderson complaining yep. about that, saying- I remember distinctly, he said, who would want to buy a $500 car? And I said, well, you know, Chancellor Anderson, it's not buying a $500 car. It's buying a $10,000 car for $500. Who wouldn't want to buy it for that? Right. And I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I think Daryl Allison has come back around on that. Now faithful state is part of NC promise. Right. Yes. Daryl Allison. Yes. And so the, the, I think that the, you know, 
for me, people, people sometimes ask me, um, like, is there anything positive that you would say about the UNC board of governors? Right? <laughs> Cause you write all these stories that make them look so bad. And one of the things that I would say is like, I was a first generation college student. Right. Um, and I was broke, 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 broke. And going to UNCG was at the outside of my ability to pay for it. Right. And I took out loans and I worked jobs and I was an RA and I did everything I could to be able to afford to do that. And I was still just scraping by. My parents were not in a position to pay for all of that for, for me. And I think that that NC Promise program would have been enormous for me and kids like me when I was in college. And I'm really glad that, you know, from a North Carolina citizen level, that we have something like that in place because I think more people deserve to go to college and people who want to go to college and people who want to go to college and can't afford it ought to be, ought to have an option. And some of these schools are, some of these schools are excellent, excellent schools. I think that there was a, an initial worry that they would be seen as cut rate schools or discount schools. If they there did was this. part of that. And then there was, there was a group of people trying to say that the, um, the legislature was not going to continue to fund it, that it was going to be a one and done type deal. And they were going to lower the rate and then raise it back in an effort to somehow damage the schools, which, you know, you have to remember who was pushing that at the time. And it was Tom Apodaca. And I remember I was standing outside his office and some uh, alumni from various schools came out and he said, they don't want to be part of it. Fine. And, and he was supporting this for Western. Right. And you know, anyone that, and he loves Western. So anyone that would have thought that he would be damaging his, uh, his own favored school with this program, uh, everybody else was getting the same benefit. And if they didn't want it, which yeah. a lot of groups and chancellors did not, those schools that got it have done exceptionally well. Well, and that's what in your business you call a proof of concept, right? Yeah, I mean, right. like, you know, the, the, when you see a thing work, other people will want to be part of it. I think the, the way that we got to, t to talking about this though, was talking about Nicole Hannah Jones at, at UNC Chapel Hill. And I think that the, you know, what's, what's really interesting to me about that case, in addition to it just being, it having everything, right. I mean, one of the reasons that that story just lit up and went crazy is that it has everything. It has race, it has politics, it has journalism, it has academia. But how much did race really factor in? You know, a lot of people keep saying that like the board was racist and, I can tell you one of our last board meetings when this uh, topic was discussed, I said, you know, if anybody discriminated against someone and there was some racial discrimination going on, root them out, fire them, get rid of them, you know, call them out. They don't need to be part of the university system, but I have not been able to find any evidence of it being racial well, other than someone saying, well, the 1619 project right. is about race. And so therefore it is, but I, you know, again, I've heard conversations about the research involved or the conclusions reached, but she was offered a job. Yes. And she accepted the job on a tenure track. She just, and this was a decision by Susan King, the board never voted no. And the chancellor. And the chancellor never voted no. It just, I think um, Susan King saw an expedient way to get to the same place and made that offer, and frankly, but for your article, maybe um, she wouldn't have kind of saw it as as much of a slight. Um, you know, from my standpoint, where I come, you know, where I come down yeah. on tenure. I don't believe in tenure. Right. I don't believe in lifetime appointments. For you've been anyone. very consistent in that. Yes. Um, 
because, you know, I just don't, the rest of us don't have that in the world. And I, I have not heard well, a the good Pope, enough the argument. Pope has it, you know. Well, and I don't think the Pope should have it either. Yeah. I don't think federal judges should have it either. Right. I don't believe any of them should have it. Right. Um, but it's, um, so that was really the only perceived slight was the, the tenure decision. Well, it depends. But she was you, offered the same. I mean, yeah. her salary wasn't any different. She was tenure track and, and tenure track really results in tenure. I mean. Well, see, here's the, here's the, here's the crux of the argument. The jugular of the whole thing, right? Is it depends who you ask because, you know, the, the, um, what you're saying is there was an expedient way of hiring her. And so they did that. that now, Susan King, um, Dean Susan King did. Yes. That wasn't right. You know, the board of trustees didn't say, well, we're not going to grant tenure. And so therefore you should do this instead. Well, she, it's interesting. It's she interesting. made that decision, I believe. Yeah. Well, so Susan, but again, I wasn't part of the board of trustees. So. Yeah. Right. Susan King's story and uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's story and the chancellor's story is that that came about because, and we've seen this happen in other ways, so it's not like shocking to me that this would happen, uh, you know, that tenure decision went into a committee, went into the university governance, no, I'm sorry, not university governance, that's board of governors, the, on the board of trustees, uh, Duckett's committee, help me out here. The Well, typically it's like personnel and tenure. Yeah, it goes into this committee and it doesn't come out. And now- some of this is who, some of this is who are you going to believe? Cause there's not any, there's not any, uh, way to empirically prove it that there were some back channel communications between Bob blue and the then provost of UNC, the chancellor of UNC, Kevin Guskowitz and Susan King and Nicole Hannah Jones, wherein it was communicated to them. You need to find a different way to do this. We don't want to have a vote on this because not everybody's going to agree and it's going to get ugly and it's going to get political. And in the end, we don't necessarily think you're going to win it. So if you want to hire her, you got to figure out a way to do it without this automatic tenure thing. Now, could that be because people felt like you do that, that, you know, tenure is not uh, an automatic thing or, or should even be a thing. Could it be because people think uh, a politically controversial person like Nicole Hannah Jones, and she is, undeniably politically controversial as is her work uh, is not something that we want associated with the school or we want to put in a, a person in a tenure position where then they can basically, you know, carry out this work and we have no ability to sever our relationship with them or it's harder to do so. But I think it's, isn't it probably like one in a hundred people that are hired that don't have tenure already that are granted tenure on day one. I mean, it's well. The difference I mean, being most of the this, tenure stuff that I've seen come up is someone's already working for the university in their tenure track, and then they're conferred tenure, yeah. or they're brought in and they have tenure somewhere else, and so therefore they're granted tenure here. But yeah, I don't remember seeing a lot of, and I would think that it probably occurs most. I would guess in the journalism school and the business school, or or someplace where you're hiring more from the professional side. Yes. The, the fact bringing them in. The, the biggest factor here was that Knight foundation thing, um, which I think a lot of people like, so this is another, this is another thing that I'm, I'm proud of in a way that I don't think is um, egotistical. If you read only my coverage of this, you would have gotten all of the correct facts about what happened. You would have gotten all of the correct steps. You would have gotten, you would have understood what the tenure thing is. You would have understood what a Knight Foundation chair is. You would have understood how many there had been. You would have understood all of that. 
But when the national media got involved, when when the New York Times and the Washington Post and Time Magazine and CNN and all these people began reporting it, a lot of those little details got lost. Yeah. Yeah. And so it became the Board of Governors rejected tenure. That didn't happen. There wasn't a vote. It became the, the that, you know, the that it was a tenure track position. It wasn't a tenure track position. It was a tenured position. People didn't understand how rare it is in academia for there to be these positions that come with tenure. Now, it's not necessarily rare, like you say, if there if there's a position that's set up to come from the professions or a special situation, a name chair, a, a, an endowed thing, then, you know, very often or in this case, always it will come with tenure. Um, and that means that the board of trustees at that time needs to approve it. Um, and that's always the case, right? But the difference is, and I think this is an interesting um, look at how the boards of trustees and the boards of gov and the board of governors has changed under Republican leadership over the course of the last decade plus, um, which is that Republicans came in and when they took over state government and they had enough of a majority that they could begin appointing all of the members of the board of governors, and then they took away the power of the governor to appoint members of the boards of trustees conveniently right when they elected a Democrat. Uh, that wasn't something they were interested in doing when McCrory was governor, only after he lost. Um, you know, w- once they, which by the way, like good politics, you know what I mean? Like as somebody who's standing outside of that and watching it, that's a very shrewd move. Um, you know, th- but, but anyway, w- when they do that, um, the, uh, they begin to question a lot of things about how academia has worked in general. Somebody like you who doesn't believe that tenure should be a thing, right? That's a minority position, as you know, because you are, you know, on the losing end of that vote frequently. Run, even on my board. Yeah, even on, even board on your trustees, board. That's exactly right. Which is, by the way, chaired by a Democrat and the secretary is a Democrat. And you've got it's Gene a lot more, Davis, who was a big Democrat. It's a Teresa, lot more, big Democrat. It's a lot more diverse than the board of governors, for sure. Yeah. But- you know, that is a, that is an opinion. These, these questions about like, well, it's always worked this way in academia, academia, but should it, right? A lot of those questions begin to be asked by Republicans and conservative Republicans who look at academia and see a lot of things that they don't like, right? That was less the case when, when Democrats were in charge. So all of a sudden it's like, well, but that always has tenure becomes not so fast. We've still got to approve it. And if we don't agree with it, then it doesn't automatically go through. We're not a rubber stamp, right? And so you can feel one of two ways about that. You can feel like, well, you know, this is the new boss and he's got some questions and you got to answer them. Or you can feel these people are inserting themselves into things that are not their business, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, when people ask me, so what changed when Republicans got involved? And I wouldn't even say Republicans because, you know, I served on the board of governors for eight years and I argued with Republicans on a lot of issues. So it's not an R versus D discussion. I mean, hell on um, board of governors, we had, we're talking about chancellor raises one time we were nearly at a split vote. So you had half and half on the same issue. I think what our class of appointees were um, more independent thinkers And we did not, we actually read the materials. You know, it's real easy with these things. And it's the biggest problem I believe there is with government and nonprofit boards and um, 
well, really any sort of boards, um, especially the university boards, where you're offered a lot of free, very nice stuff, right? So if I want tickets to every game, I can have tickets to every game. Now, I don't think that's right. So what I've told them, and there's, you know, I've got um, written correspondence about this where I've said, you know, look, if I'm going to take a ticket, I'm going to pay for it. And, you know, I want to keep a running track and I'll pay, you know, I'm not going to pay like every game, but keep a running track and I'll pay, but I'm committing to pay on everything. And I also feel like sometimes I don't take some of those benefits because I'm concerned that it's the appearance of a conflict Mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, if we're voting on the athletic director salary or we're voting on a coach's salary and at the same time we're attending a game cheering on wanting somebody to win or we're getting tickets to a game or getting preferred parking or VIP treatment, then it's a little tough. Or if you're attending a, uh, a musical performance or a cocktail party or anything else, the, the board of trustees and board of governors historically have been wined and dined to a significant degree. And then you've got a lot of people like Roger Perry who have built entire careers around doing transactions in Chapel Hill where the university is a tenant or they've developed something beside it. And so you've got this whole, and most recently with Harry Smith. Yes, indeed. With his transaction with A&T where he made eight and a half million dollars. Go read that WRL story. So, you know, there's a lot of these people on there in the past that have received a, a, um, a benefit in terms of tickets or treatment or ability to reach out to a chancellor about maybe someone applying to a school or, or something like that, that is a perceived benefit. There's also the prestige of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's the potentially financial gain. If you are um, negotiating for your company to do business with the university and there's been a cleaning of house on that generally speaking um, where less of less people are being appointed with that sort of a benefit or that, or that would take that sort of a benefit. And I think that's been the big change and the people that had that benefit, you know, that had all those tickets or had those deals don't like it and they want to be back on there. And so any way they can to stand on the sidelines and critique and try and get those seats back. They want those seats back. Well, you'd be in a better position to talk about that than I would because you were inside of it. But I think that the the differences go well beyond that in the sense that, so I'll, I'll give you some, some examples of what I think my personal opinion, uh, what I think is good and what I think is bad. So um, I do think that you see a larger number of people now on the board of governors and also some of these boards of trustees who come from backgrounds more like Randy Ramsey or more like, um, Oh, who's the gentleman from, uh, Western North Carolina, the colorful former sheriff, Phil Byers, Phil Byers. Yeah. Um, boy, he is hilarious. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, uh, you see more people like that on the board than you would have, uh, previously. Um, and that's maybe a good thing because they're, and on those two people, you know, what I think is it's a diverse background, diverse viewpoints, but they care very deeply for the university. Randy has been very generous with NC state and trying to attract people, um, 
to be able to pursue their dreams mm-hmm. and give them the opportunity that he didn't have. Right. And Phil Byers the same way. He has been so generous um, and raised a lot of money through different sources for different programs. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's changed lives in that uh, part of the state. And I think, you know, those two are characteristic of big hearted, um, nice people, you know, that, that care about the university and you don't have to be the snobbish um, wine and cheese crowd that frankly may be more selfish and not care about the university, more caring about what they get out of it than what they're giving back. And so I think it's been refreshing to see people like Phil Byers or uh, Randy Ramsey or, or me um, on the board that, you know, when, when, Phil Berger reached out, Senator Berger reached out to me about um, serving. I didn't know uh, nearly what I know now about the UNC system. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think he felt like some fresh perspective where um, he was appointing people more for um, their, their new way of looking at things and bringing, you know, I think you just need to bring a fresh perspective periodically, especially to a big institution that sometimes is self-dealing and self-serving and bringing outsiders in that can yeah, break so through that's that. A, and that's, not that everybody that comes in will be perfect, but you know, right. it's a, it's a, it's a change of the regime. That's a big positive for sure. At least in my opinion, because, um, you know, Randy Ramsey and I are from similar backgrounds. We're from similar geographic areas. Um, you know, I remember <laughs> talking about Republicans uh, being at each other's throats. I remember when Randy Ramsey became the head of the BOG, I had several, not one, but I think three um, BOG members who were Republicans call me up or email me and say, you know, Randy doesn't even have a four year degree. Randy went. Yeah, to they a- shop that story all over the state. Yeah. Randy led by. Randy- I'm going to presume, in my opinion, it would be Harry Smith. So uh, I, the, the number of people contacted me and said, uh, don't you want to write this story about how he doesn't even have a four-year degree? He went to a community college. And I don't remember if he went to Carter Community College or went to Craven Community College, but it's down in that area. And um, And they were like, don't you think that's a big story? And I had to tell them, that's where I'm from. Like, but for, you know, a a few small things, that's where I would have gone to college. Why do you think I think that's shameful? Why do you think that I think that that is, you know, beneath someone who should be on the board of governors, who should be the head of the board of governors? I think that it's admirable that somebody who comes from a modest background, went to a community college, has risen to the level where they're now making decisions at the UNC system level and are looked to by the other board of governors members as a leader. Why would that be a bad thing? And people were like, what are you talking about? And like, I think because of the way I speak, because of I don't have a strong accent, because of I don't know the way I dress or something, because I work for a newspaper. People well, I just assume you're liberal. So they you're think snob. I'm. They think I'm liberal. They think I'm a Yankee. <laughs> they think um, you know, that I went to Duke or UNC or Johns Hopkins or something, and they just don't understand that I'm Eastern North Carolina trailer trash. Like you know, like I come from a very modest background, and you know, the people in my family were commercial fisher. My my grandfather who I told you about and my uncle, they died at sea as commercial fishermen, like not that long ago, you know? I mean, like, so the idea that I would in some way have affinity with them and look down on Randy Ramsey is just silly. Um, When you look at what the board has done, you know, going back to accomplishments, one of the things I'm probably most proud of that the board has done 
is the widespread articulation agreement with community colleges that allows uh, credits to transfer over in a path from community college to the universities without, you know, losing credits in there and letting people know when they're going through this, okay, this one's going to count, this one's not, and here's how it tracks over to this um, course on the university side. And also a reverse articulation agreement where you take someone that had two years worth of schooling at a university but then had to stop out and they would qualify for an associate's degree. Yes. And so, you know, that's what happens when you don't have a bunch of snobs <laughs> on the board of governors. You know, we're actually looking back and saying, hey, let's figure out what's in the best interest of the people of the state, not let's, you know, have this ivory tower, this elite place that, you know, oh, you peon, don't you dare come, uh, you know, begging at the door. We're uh, we're keeping everyone out that doesn't fit our uh, preferred profile. I think there's a bit of that for sure. And I agree with you about the community college thing. And I have friends and family who have benefited from that kind of thing. And not only just only in this state, but in other states. Um, and I think that that's great. And I think it should have been, should have happened earlier. Um, I will say, so on the negative side, uh, you know, the UNC board of governors is stacked with political appointees and pretty much purged Democrats for years. The only Democrat on the board right now is Joel Ford, who's a Democrat who lost his democratic uh, seat uh, in a primary because he was voting so often with Republicans and talking about maybe he joined the Republican party, right? That's the sort of Democrat who is welcome on the board of governors right now. I don't think it's a positive to have that, have that sort of litmus test for, uh, for any political board of political appointees, but also but on the board of trustees, you've got five Democrats on the UNC Chapel Hill board of trustees. Yes. On the right. UNC Chapel Hill yeah, board of trustees. Right. And I think that the boards of trustees in general are going to be a little more diverse for a variety of reasons, not, not the least of which is because people it's, it's hard to find a group of uh, fellow travelers in every geographic area, particularly at HBCUs. But, um, but I think that the, 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 you know, the downside is you got some scoundrels you've got, you got, you got some, you know, the, like that board of governors has, has been uh, over the course of just the years that the Republicans have been in charge, as you say, has been full of some people who had their nose in the trough uh, for their own businesses. It's been and- full and I would say, for the most part, we called them out and held them accountable. Eventually, after a couple of years, yeah. I well, mean, when, <laughs> when you, I mean, you don't find out right away. Yeah. I mean, well, you're, you're an investigative report. You yes. don't find out right. Away. Well, how no. do you know how long it takes to get a Freedom of Information Act request right. back? Oh, very when long time. When I ask for info, it's the same thing. It might right. take a year. Right. And I will say that the as an investigative reporter, just stuff that I've written about on the Board of Governors, the Board of Governors essentially ignored. Um, you know, I think wouldn't happen on a board that didn't have as much like political hegemony, like that they weren't, you know, like quite that homogenous, you know, the, um, like, you know, when you, when you look around a board of governors and you see current active lobbyists who are lobbying the very general assembly that they are also appointed by, that's a bit of a problem. When you see people who are former heads of the North Carolina Republican party or people who were six months ago in the general assembly, that might be a percept like if it's not a real problem, it's at least a perception problem. I do think there needs to be, and I've said this a before, cooling off period. You've said a that cooling off period. Yeah, and, and I think that that's appropriate out there. So you mentioned um, a book, and you said, oh, um, um, yeah. you know, book about UNC. Yeah. So um, when can we expect to see that? And, oh, uh, and what's I love- the? Uh, wouldn't What's I love the- to tell you? So what, you know, um, 
over the course of the last few years at NC Policy Watch, I've been writing a lot about the UNC system. And I think there's a lot of like, as this conversation has shown, there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting nuances and nooks and crannies to explore um, about public public education, public higher education, what it should be, how politics is involved in that inevitably because it's a state institution. Um, you know, and so particularly um, in the last few years when there's been more conflict, people have said to me over and over again, like, well, you should write a book. You should write a book. You know, if you're a daily newspaper reporter and your experience is, you know, writing 100, 200, 300 stories a year for most of your career, the idea of taking the time and the effort to write a book seems a little silly. But uh, something that happened to me over the course of the last few years is I kept meeting reporters who I respect, who are, you know, reporters from this state who have written books, that excellent book by, um, uh, both, uh, Nick Oshner and, um, oh, I'm so embarrassed that I'm forgetting the other gentleman who works for Axios, um, who, uh, wrote the vote collectors. Um, I thought that that was a really terrific book. It has something for everybody. Republicans are going to read it and go, ha, see, I told you Democrats are going to go, ha, see, I told you, um, it really killer, killer book. Um, there's a guy who was, a was a student at UNC Chapel Hill and then became and worked at the Tar Heel and then uh, worked at the Chronicle of Higher Education. He wrote a book called Discredited about that athletic scandal that he started covering when he was a student at the Tar Heel, right? And he continued at uh, the Chronicle, at the Chronicle of Higher Education. And because that scandal went on for like seven years, you know? And so um, I interviewed him and talked to him a little bit. And I, with each of them, I said, you know, how did you do this? Like, how did you, how did you write a book given what you have to do every day, given how news is always changing or whatever. And they said like, you know, they said, uh, well, it's, it's, uh, both harder and easier than you might imagine because you already have a terrific amount of knowledge about things that other people don't have from your having reported it so deeply. If you're a beat reporter or you're an investigative reporter, um, and it's harder also than you think it's going to be because once you start looking at how much more additional reporting you're going to need to do, uh, it's intimidating. So in terms of when we get, when one might read this book, you know, my goal really is in the next year to have it finished. And, you know, I've got some interest already from publishers. Um, but there's like, there, there will be an amount of reporting where I'm just going to have to take some weeks off, <laughs> you know, and just devote myself to this. I'm sure that won't make too many people happy. Well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, the, the, uh, I think certain people will be very happy. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting cause it's like, once you're, you get, when you're in journalism for a little while, your metabolism changes, you know, you, you, um, especially if you're in daily newspaper journalism, every day you're not publishing a story feels like you're doing something wrong. If you take a week, if you take two weeks, if you take a month on a story, you begin to feel like, what am I even doing here? Well, I'm probably like a FOMO, you know, you're, there, something comes up and you're like, Ooh, yeah, I want to write about that. Exactly. And you have to sort of train yourself as I've had to do after I got out of daily newspaper reporting to say, okay, what if I write fewer stories, but they're deeper? What if I write fewer stories, but they're the things I really want to write about, not just whatever's happening today, you know? Um, and so that's, that's hard. Um, and also trying to write a book that I think is fair and is, you know, I want it to include the stuff we've been talking about, like, you know, how I think that there are some really bad things about 
the system that we have for politically appointing people to run this system. But it has also resulted in things that we've been talking about, which is because there was a political shift. There was also a shift in ideology in terms of, you know, maybe who would be on the board and who would be leader leadership of the board and things like that. It doesn't mean there haven't been scandals. There have been. Um, but I think that, the, you know, like the system also deserves the system and its leaders deserve credit for still being an outstanding public university system. I mean, for yeah, when you look at the metrics. Yeah. You know, I think we've got very enviable um, success over the last uh, 10 years. That, yeah. Uh, you know, again, I wouldn't sit there and say was the, you know, it, it's a group effort um, starting with the, uh, the faculty and staff and the administration and the, the students, of course, and the graduate students, but then also uh, the governing boards who have been willing to question things because in order to adapt, and I wish that the one thing I look back on that I wish I'd been more forceful about was online education and uh, hybrid education, which I pushed for when I came in in 2013. And I feel like had we embraced that earlier, if we'd had a project Kitty Hawk a few years ago and then COVID hit, mm-hmm. boy, we would have been in great shape. Absolutely. I remember those discussions about like when COVID hit, well, our whole model is based on people living on campus and living in dorms and all these things is financially things could fall apart. If this gets, you know, well, why should it be that way? The technology shouldn't make it so that it needs to be that way. But, you know, to, to get back to the, well, you were saying like in the last 10 years, well, let me tell you this. I went to three years of high school, my last three years of high school in Bristol, Connecticut. Right. And People in Bristol, Connecticut couldn't find most places in North Carolina on a map, right? Uh, And yet the reputation of the University of North Carolina, particularly Chapel Hill, was such that when I was looking at schools and I said to teachers of mine in Bristol, Connecticut, well, because I was born in North Carolina and because my dad's in the military and technically we're still residents of North Carolina, even though we are living elsewhere, I could get in-state tuition in North Carolina. And so I'm looking at North Carolina schools. Not one of them said, why would you look at North Carolina schools when you go to Connecticut schools? Why would you look at North Carolina schools when you go to UMass or SUNY? Every one of them said, oh my God, really? Because the North Carolina public education system for higher ed is amazing. You should go to Chapel Hill. It's a public Ivy. You should go to the following UNC school, NC state. You should go to, you know, like they knew these schools, they, they, they had a reputation. They, one of them said to me, wherever Fred Chapel is, that's where you should go. It turns out Fred <laughs> Chapel was at UNCG at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. And UNCG has got a great reputation as well. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I think for people from Greensboro over the years, it's been one of these things that because it's here, right? You're like, uh, I don't want to go where, yeah, where I, I'm, uh, where it's my hometown. And for me, it was UNCG was so important because so I didn't have anybody who'd gone to college in my family who I could talk to about this. Not not a single person who I could say, "How did you make this decision? How did you decide a school? How did you?" You know, for me, it was, "Oh my God, I can't afford any of this." Right? My parents can't afford any of this, and also I don't know what I want. Like I I have some vague idea of what I'm interested in studying, but I don't really know. So I took tours. I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I went to, uh, actually, I I decided to go to UMass Boston, and I accepted, and I got a college ID for UMass Boston, uh, which wow. I, st- which I still have with my long flowing curly hair when I had it. Um, and, uh, and then I ended up going to UNCG. And one of the reasons was of the schools that I went to, it felt most like a place I'd feel welcome. 
when I went to UNC Chapel Hill, I'm, I'm ashamed to say now because I think I just missed a lot of things back then. You know how you have these like tours that a student will lead? They'll lead a student tour right. and they'll say, we went on one of those, my dad and I. And um, when we went, we got this young woman who was very excited about UNC Chapel Hill. And she was very excited to tell me how important Greek culture is there and how you'll want to join a fraternity or sorority right away. And it's such a key to the rest of the university and all of these things. And I couldn't have been less interested in that. I was a punk rock kid, right? And so I was like, oh, this place doesn't seem like it's for me at all. And I missed so much of the rest of the university just because I made this snap yeah, decision. Yeah, Cat's Cradle and all I was that, 18 yeah. years old old and I, I heard this one thing I didn't like and I looked around a little bit and I just was like, I'm not sure. And But when I went to UNCG, um, it felt much smaller than Chapel Hill, but still a large, gorgeous campus, larger and gor- more gorgeous now than it's ever been. And um, it was a little artsy. It was a little bohemian as compared to some of the other places. Um, you know, like it has that, uh, that, that MFA program that's sort of famous, not only within the system, but nationally, um, for writing. Um, and the, uh, you know, and, and I just thought, you know, I could really see myself here, which I think is what you're looking for, whether you go to, you know, UNC Wilmington, or you go to ECU, or you go to App State, or you go to, you know, or you're at Chapel Hill or NC State or A&T. Like you're looking for that place that is, a mixture of the things that you want academically, but also the college experience you want to have. Yeah. And North Carolina is really blessed in that it has so many universities that meet the needs of so many different types of people, first generation people, uh, people of different income levels, people of different racial backgrounds and economic backgrounds, you know, um, and cultural backgrounds. And I think that that's like, it's something that people who live in North Carolina and people, don't necessarily recognize, you know, like this just here. So we just think we got great basketball teams. Right. So, but, but we don't think about like the real diversity of the system and how, what a strength that is for people who want to go to college from the mountains to the coast. So in your book, what are the, what are the primary themes? So what's the, well, I think that what I'm wrestling with in the book is, and the Nicole Hannah Jones episode, I think is an interesting example of this is every conversation about public higher ed is a conversation about what people think higher ed should be. Right. So like we've been talking about, and that's the way it's been since its inception, a hundred percent. And I, and North Carolina has an interesting, it's not unique in the, nation or anything, but it has an interesting example of how Democrats were in charge of the university system for a very long time, or they were in charge of this part of the university system for a very long time. And the university system under Democrats reflected their values. It reflected what they were concerned about. It reflected what they valued, what they didn't. And then there was this shift uh, to Republican leadership. And there were some major changes, some of them slow, some of them fast at the university level. And there was some panic about that because anytime things change, people panic. Um, and I think some of that panic was warranted. And I think some of the moves that were made were like bald facedly political and kind of crazy. And some of them were a long time coming and should have happened earlier. Like we talked about with NC promise and, uh, you know, concentration on the more concentration on the community college system and all of that. So I think what the book is hopefully going to get at is here we have this interesting laboratory of what happens in a university system when things go from 
this set of values to this set of values. And some things are universal, you know, across political ideologies, you have corruption (laughs) across political ideologies. You have mistakes across political ideologies. You have things that make the university system great. Like I said, 20 plus years ago when I was in high school, the university system was great. People in Connecticut knew that right now people on the board of governors now would say, and we've made it even greater in the last 10 years, you know, uh, and other people would say they've ruined it. They've ruined the university system in the last 10 years. And like most things, the answer, the, 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 the reality is somewhere in the middle. Um, and I would say, you know, it, it's, it's not just a change in values. <clears throat> it's a change of, um, reading the materials and being engaged and weighing in. Uh, I think if you look back at historical board of, board of governors and board of trustees votes, they were likely nearly all unanimous. And so there's just no diversity of thought on the board. And so, you know, people keep portraying it like all the Republicans think the same way on the board of governors or the board of trustees. And we don't, we, right. we, we have various opinions, but we're unafraid to talk about it because we've read the materials. We're there to engage. We're talking about it. We're bringing different experiences in and we're not just saying, well, we're going to rubber stamp everything that comes before us. So one of the interesting things I think about conflict on the board of governors, at least over the course of the time that I've been there is that you're correct that even when you have a group that is largely, if not entirely Republicans, um, you can have conflict because the fact that somebody's a Republican doesn't necessarily mean they're on your same page. I mean, we're seeing that in the Republican party right now at the national level, at the state level, right? Madison Cawthorn and Tim Moore are not on the same page on most things. Trump and Ben Shapiro, you know what I mean? Not on the same page on most things. Marty Kodis. And uh, I'm trying to think of who, who I would say you're not on the same page with on the, well, let's say Harry Smith when you were, uh, when he was on the, on the board, maybe you weren't always on the same page with, with you know, with those people. So, I think it's it's an oversimplification to talk about partisanship and and maybe more interesting to talk about ideology. But at the same time, I think that um, the type of person that you tend to get on a board of governors, um, and this is this was probably true when Democrats were in charge. I don't know because I didn't have a lot of experience covering it back then. You get alpha males. <laughs> you get you know like like people who are accomplished business leaders, people who are thought leaders or party leaders or big donors. Well, you don't get to be a big donor unless you had some success in your life, right? Where did that come from? So you get these big outsized personalities, and whether it's Marty Cotis who's not afraid to be the only no vote on something and tell you why, or you know stick a finger in the eye of the person who you think is doing the wrong thing and should be called out, or it's Harry Smith who's a bull in a china shop or it's um you know who's really interesting is art pope because people think of especially on the left people think of art pope as this great boogeyman you know who uh you know is pulling strings and is whatever and man does art pope get blown off sometimes by fellow members of the board of governors he'll say i really think this is important and we should discuss we should discuss it and jim holmes or somebody else will be like great yeah okay next thing like you know like like, well i think it's you know a lot of times that's because someone like art has spent a lot of time studying an issue. And it's very hard when you've got 24 members and you're going over a bunch of different items to have a substantive discussion in two minutes or or five minutes. And so there's this pressure always for, you know, people wanting to kind of, okay, let's get this over with. And and my feeling in arts is, uh, has a similar approach is, you know, look, if we're going to spend time and we're going to read 
300 pages worth of materials, then we need to talk about it, not just get it in here, slap a rubber stamp on it and go. A really interesting Art Pope thing recently for me was watching him say to the rest of the Board of Governors, okay, listen, why are we moving the UNC system offices to Raleigh? Like, did we as a board have a discussion about that? Are we, did we have a study? Have we looked at the pluses and minuses and the numbers? And and are we like, what is the, you know, we're going to ask people to uproot their lives. Some of them who work for the UNC system and move it to Raleigh. Why? To get it closer to the seat of government? Which of us thinks that's a good thing? Like, you know, like he's having this conversation and he's basically having it with himself because as Randy Ramsey was only too quick to tell him, this decision has been made. It's been made in Raleigh and they're not interested in our input. Like we've been handed this decision. Now we need to figure out how we can make it happen. And I think part of that too is, you know, you have to remember the legislature is presumably representative of the people of the state and the people of the state don't just have a one issue like the university, right? So it's, it's okay. Well, how does the university work with K through 12? or with the community college system. And I think that was the impetus for the idea of moving these various boards into one area because, you know, being in the same building with somebody else, you tend to have more coordination. You're more likely to reach an articulation agreement. You're more likely to say, Hey, uh, what are we doing about K through 12 and how can we improve our outcomes? And so I think it's a concerted effort. Um, but there's a lot of little buckets of money out there and fiefdoms where people don't want to give up their own particular control. Well, and it's always about whose ox is getting gored, right? I mean, the, the, I don't know how you feel about profanity on your podcast, but no, no, uh, feel. the, the, uh, as you can probably tell, I grew up in newsrooms and I'm very in favor of it. Um, uh, the, no, but, um, so it's interesting because so now Republicans are in charge both in Raleigh and in the UNC system. And so their feeling is let's just move everything to Raleigh because, you know, as you say, there are efficiencies and there are, uh, you know, it should be closer to the seat of government, not farther away or whatever. That is an argument that would have gotten laughed out of every Republican meeting I'd ever been to 15 years ago because they weren't in charge. And the idea was Raleigh, fuck Raleigh, like, you know, local government, you know, like, you know, all these, all these decisions should be making, be made as locally as possible or whatever. But Democrats are the same way. Republicans are the same way. But it's slightly different because you're talking about, let's say the community college system. So you're covering all the counties in the state yeah, or the UNC system. So all 17 schools. And so it's not, you, you can't really have it. There's no local. It's, where are you going to put it? Well, why? And I think the other reason that people have considered moving is why is it in Chapel Hill? Yeah. Well, because, because that was the starts, first university. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it starts to feel very favored and the other right. schools, you know, I did appreciate and our board was one of the few that started moving around the state, having meetings in other schools. Right. Just in a Western. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's, that's more fair representation. Um, for meetings um, to move around like that. But in terms of your headquarters and coordination, the idea is if you put them all in one spot, they can all work together. Right. Um, I just think that's an idea that would have been anathema to Republicans when they were not the majority in Raleigh because they would have been like, great. Yeah. It's there and it's all being run by Democrats. And I mean, there are a lot of examples of that, right? Like I remember, I don't remember where you were on this. I tend to think that you were probably on the other side of this issue politically, but this is back when Trudy Wade was like, let's, uh, let's, uh, uh, redistrict the city council, but let's do it from Raleigh. Billboards against it. Even though 
I still support Trudy. I think she's done a lot of great things and I would agree with her on a ton of things out there, but on that one, I didn't. um, But that's the, because you know what? Actually the four year terms, I, I think makes um, city council maybe less accountable to the people in the city the four-year term versus two-year term. Now yeah. it does mean you're not constantly running, so there's some benefits out there too. I'm I'm not sure where I come out on that. But that's another overall. example of that's not a conservative idea. It's not a conservative idea to redistrict a city council from Raleigh. They would have they they you know they would have grabbed pitchforks and flames if Democrats had said let's go into Carteret County and change you know and in Havelock the Havelock City Council I'd like to change the you know the the makeup of the board and how many years it runs and where the lines are and stuff from Raleigh as Democrats because that's a Republican area and it's a Republican area and a part of the state that's got nothing to do with Raleigh and you're just doing it because you can like and that's you know like that's a but that but that's what happens with every party like every party that gets enough power wants to exercise that power in the way that they want to exercise it to the benefit of themselves and the people who support them. Yeah. And I, mean, I don't remember in the past Democrats talking about nonpartisan redistricting or things like that. And, and, now, all, and, right. and now the Republicans who were talking about it aren't much talking about it. I remember it's so funny. I was I, not very far from here at the, in the, the Greensboro public library out in front of the, in downtown Greensboro. I sat outside with John Hardister when he was a young man who was, uh, you know, just dreaming of holding office one day uh, and just beginning to wet his toes uh, in that, you know, area. And his saying to me, what we really need is some nonpartisan redistricting. Like that really would solve so much if we could just get to the point where we could take some of the R's and D's and the politics out of this. And, you know, it would really make a lot of sense. John Hardister is the majority whip now in the, in the, and you will not hear him say that anymore. Like, you know. Well, I think because you realize at some point that whoever's in power, you know, if let, let's say the Republicans agree to nonpartisan redistricting that, and the Democrats gain back control be the first thing they throw out right is a nonpartisan redistricting that, that is the problem with all politics the problem with well it's not the problem one of many problems with politics is that nobody wants justice everybody wants revenge so that yeah. you know like the, the problem is always what are they going to do when they get in what are they going to do when they get in right and it's, it's something that you confront all the time right it's like you know if you if you take away the ability of the governor to appoint members of the board of boards of trustees, for instance, what happens the next time there's a Republican governor and there's a democratic majority? It's like, well, we're going to, we're going to throw those dice. You know why? Cause we're in power now and we think we're going to be in power for a little while. So I think we ought to have pop quizzes for the uh, board of trustees and the board of governors. <laughs> There we go. Make it merit-based. The yeah. hunger games. Yeah, right. Let's just, you know, really get in there and see what these people are made of. Yeah, it's uh, it's wacky. So let me wrap up with one question sure. for you, which is what's your advice for someone that feels like they can't take that independent line or they can't be a maverick yet because something's holding them back? What What's your advice for how someone can become more of a maverick or an independent thinker in their life? Well, you know, I think about when I was covering the Guilford County Board of Commissioners, I did that for a few years in Guilford County. And during that time, I got to do it in what I think was a fascinating period because it went from being Democratic control to Republican control. And then it went back again. Right. And um, on that board, I really learned a lot about local government and government in general by dealing with a few very strong personalities. Uh, Billy Yao, as you might remember, was on oh, yeah. the Guilford County Board of Commissioners who had a Confederate 
flag tattoo and uh you know once uh printed up some t-shirts of calvin from calvin and Hobbes pissing on the naacp logo right uh skip alston a powerful controversial very opinionated uh black black democrat from uh guilford county was sort of his opposite number right and then these new folks came in some of whom were with that tea party movement that sort of swept in and uh some of them lasted some of them didn't but it's interesting because because I worked for the News and Record, because I'm a reporter, because people assume I'm a flaming liberal, they thought, well, you must love dealing with Skip Alston and you must hate dealing with Billy Yao. And it was very much the opposite. I had huge problems dealing with Skip Alston, who was constantly trying to bigfoot me and bully me and uh, you know, said on television that I was a the most unethical reporter that he'd ever dealt with and he was never talking to me again. And then like a week later called me up for a story and said, Oh no, I was just, you know. Uh and and Billy always basically dealt straight with me, even though he sometimes said some very offensive things, you know. Um and then when the new breed came in, my favorite politician to deal with from a shoot straight tell you what he thinks always honest perspective was Jeff Phillips on the the board of commissioners with whom I do disagree politically on almost everything, but I thought he was a good guy, religious guy. And I don't mean like being religious makes you, um, you know, a good person. I mean that I think that he was really doing his best to live in the example of Jesus, you know, which, uh, and, um, and also he was conservative. And so we disagreed on some things, but he was great to work with. And so, you know, I think what some of these people have in common though, is that, um, to them, the most important thing wasn't necessary. Now, some of this, some of this has changed. Some of these people have shifted a little bit, but, uh, you know, um, the most important thing to them wasn't necessarily being on the Republican team, being on the democratic team. It was, um, deciding what they think is right and then going with that, you know, and sometimes this meant that they would have to buck, their own party or they would have to, I remember Jeff Phillips saying, getting really angry with some of the the rhetoric that was coming out of that conservative for Guilford County group, which he was part of, which brought him to power, but they were, you know, saying some really destructive, not very honest things um, and making some like personal slurs against people. And he just, you know, said to some of the members, like you, you really got to knock that out. Like, you know, this is just not appropriate and you're making us all look bad. Um, you know, and Skip Austin used to have this uh, saying, he probably still says this because he's back on the commissioners. Now he used to say, I have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. Yeah. He, do- he does say that. Right. And actually I, I've always gotten along with Skip out yeah. there. Um, I don't, you know, I've really haven't had too much come before the um, uh, Guilford County Board. It's been rare for me to go before them. Um, but I, I think that, you know, each person out there has their own personality for sure. And it's interesting to see um, the the conflicts. You know, if you ever want to see a good example is you go to like the Greater Greensboro Politics page. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a slight from like five years ago where someone's carrying it on through five years later on this thing. That's why I dropped out of that page because I'm like, God, this is just too much just, you know, fight club on here instead of exchange of ideas. Well, the other thing is, you know, social media exacerbates this so much because even in the early days of when I was working at the News and Record, when like Facebook was basically new, you know, uh, and social media wasn't such a big thing. Um, you'd sometimes talk with people either in the comments on your story or there would be blogs, remember those, or, uh, you know, early Facebook stuff where people would just get in your face and they'd yell at you and they'd call you names or whatever. And then you'd meet about in the community and they would be 
just pleasant as punch, you know, because it's different when you're face to face with somebody. And it's, you know, it's, it's wild. It's like, you know, the, the dealing with skip, it's like, I don't really have a problem with skip anymore. When we, when I first came in, I think he did this thing that a lot of politicians do, which is like throw an elbow. Like he wanted to establish his dominance. And so he like screwed with me a little bit. And then like, I think once he is, once he saw that, like that really wasn't going to work. And if he really wanted to work with me, he could, but he, you know, it got a little better, but um, you know, I, I think that just like deciding for yourself, what are your values? And, and also understanding that there are going to be people who have different values and that, um, that doesn't necessarily make them bad people. It just makes them people with different values. I told you that story about my mother and how, uh, you know, like she shifted politically over the course of her life, um, on certain issues. Um, and a lot of people in my family are like that. And there are still people, I mean, listen, I got relatives who are absolute gun nuts who are always, packing a pistol who are, you know, anti-government, anti-everything, you know, folks. And it doesn't mean I don't love them. We just have disagreements. And I think, um, you know, in terms of being a maverick, I mean, I think that the most maverick thing you can do is make up your mind for yourself and don't be a team player. I mean, you know, like the, the, um, when you're, when you become part of a team, you know, where it's like, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. They're my team. I'm a Republican. I'm there. Uh, you know, that's my team. You end up having to apologize for a lot of shit that you yourself wouldn't do. And you don't believe in, uh, you know, because of that's your team and you, and you, you get dragged a, a, along on some stuff just because you I got more in common with these people than these people. And I just feel like, you know, Trump is the, is maybe the, in my lifetime, the ultimate litmus test for this. There are people, I won't name them because it wouldn't be polite, but there are people even locally who I had a lot of respect for who were Republicans. And when Trump came on the scene, they said, this guy's a maniac. If he ever gets in the white house, God forbid, uh, you know who I like is Ted Cruz. You know who I like is this person. You know who I like is that person. But they were anything but Trump people. When Trump got elected, a bunch of these folks all of a sudden were singing Trump's praises and kissing his ass and they're doing it to this day. Uh, not because their politics shifted. They still think it privately over a beer. If you catch them, they'll still tell you that guy's fucking crazy. Well, he, he cowed a lot of people. I mean, yeah. he had people go up against him and he just demolished them. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, you like see LBJ that happen- on steroids. Yeah, you see that happen <laughs> enough and people are afraid. Absolutely. And especially politicians. I mean, that that could destroy your career. Yeah. I mean, look around. There's a whole lot of them that have their careers destroyed because of, you know, consistent bad words uh, from Donald Trump. Yeah. But imagine being like, I, I understand that sometimes you feel in politics that you have to compromise for the greater good or you, you know, you want to stay in office because you're trying to do the things that you want to do and that you think is good for your state or your constituency. And so you have to put up with some indignities, but imagine being Ted Cruz, imagine being Ted Cruz who like really thinks of himself and promotes himself as an intellectual Republican, who's a constitutional conservative who believes in core conservative principles that William F. Buckley would have agreed with, or, you know, you know, like real conservative stuff. And you have this guy come in and on his way to the white house, which by the way, you were trying to get to yourself. He goes, you're stupid. You're weak. You got an ugly wife. 
you, yeah. you know, you, you know, your father, let me talk, let me tell you about your father and the, and your family. Uh, and also I espouse all of these things that are actually anti-conservative, like, you know, uh, you know, manipulating the market and tariffs and, you know, like, you know, and, and say nothing of all of these other policies that have nothing to do with, you know, that really are kind of to the left of the Democrats in terms of worldview, you know, and stuff. And you got to kiss this guy's ass, which is now the position that Ted Cruz is in. You know, it's, you got to wonder what's it worth? Like, what's it worth to you? Yeah, absolutely. You know? and, to, and to my mind, it's like one of the reasons, one of the things I love about journalism is what are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to me? You going to vote me out? You know, I mean, even if, when you said earlier, like maybe you'd get canceled or whatever. Well, if I said anything in this interview that's offensive to anybody and somebody, my boss has a problem with it or whatever, you know, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but you know, like they could be mad at me and they could even fire me. But you know what I would do is go and get another job. Well, there are a few jobs in the, in the yeah. media space right now. Well, it is be, shrinking. It is. Well, but, but you, you know, could, you could go to the dark side. You could, you, could, <laughs> you know, go into a uh, corporate PR or something. Well, instead. I think that, I think that the traditional media space is shrinking, yeah. but you know, who's growing is everything else. I mean, right now, like I said, the, the state's newsroom network, which is the sort of affiliate thing we're part of has newsrooms like, brand new newsrooms that are hiring people right now, like more people than we have at policy watch. They're hiring each of these newsrooms. They opened one in Nevada recently. They opened one in, uh, there's one in Maine. There's one in, you know, uh, in Virginia, the Virginia Mercury, the, um, the, uh, you know, like they're staffing up and they're staffing up with former newspaper reporters, former radio reporters, former TV reporters. They're, you know, all this, all this like legacy heritage media that's going away. That's slowly dying. Uh, you know, things are growing behind that. And, uh, you know, some of it is partisan. Some of it is not, uh, you know, like some of it is partisan, depending on your point of view. There are people who don't like ProPublica. There are people who don't like uh, Report for America. There are people who don't like, uh, you know, uh, any of these, the Carolina Public Press or, you know, um, but like those things are, those things are growing. And I'm not like, uh, you know, I, I am at the end of the day, a capitalist. I, I don't, uh, I would be very disappointed to get paid in hugs and kisses. So I'm not making less money now than I made in newspapers. Trust me. Uh, and I don't intend to make less money next year or the year after that. Uh, like I do this for a living. It's how I put food on the table and sleep indoors. And, uh, like I intend to be doing that for a very long time. And I think that like, I want to be doing it in journalism and I think I'm going to be able to, I think that the, the, the media space is evolving in a way that there will always be room for people who can do this and are good at it and, uh, you know, and are consistent with uh, the, the values of journalism. And your backup is a novelist now. <laughs> I don't wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to write a novel. I, I think that that's, you know, if you want to make a, you want to make no money, go into fiction. Yeah. But you know, it's, I, I think that there are, uh, there, there are, you know, my, it's what my dad told me when I want to join the Marines, right. He said, there are other ways to serve your country. Right. Yeah. And, uh, it's not that I look down on anybody who's serving their country in the Marine Corps, quite the opposite. But I think that what I do is good for society. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think that. And so, uh, you know, like if, if I can do that and pay my bills, problem solved. Absolutely. So one last question, sure. if, um, for people out there, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there that deal with the media and some of them are scared of the media. They see the media as fake news or, um, they see the media as uh, evil. Um, and so they get a call from a reporter or, or they have a story they want to tell um, about a new business launch. Um, what's your advice for people in dealing with the uh, with the media? 
Well, I mean, it's my, my advice that you'd give to anybody else, uh, uh, which is that you, you really have to treat uh, people with the, with the, um, with the respect and the, and the, and the grace that you would want for yourself. So, you know, like I, I used to call people up from the news and record and they'd be like, Oh, the news and record, you know, one time this reporter from the news and record wrote this thing that I didn't like or whatever. I, I would say, you know, that happens. There are bad reporters everywhere. I, I have no doubt that you, you know, we're on the, on the receiving end of some of that. Uh, how about you just talk to me? And if I screw you, you don't have to talk to me next time. You know, uh, and I, I, and I think that most people who have dealt with me would tell you, uh, I'm not looking to screw you. I'm not looking to misquote you. I'm not looking to make you look bad. Um, you know, and, and I think that if you deal with reporters on that basis and if they do misquote you, if they, if they get facts wrong and they won't correct them or they won't, uh, you know, make clarification or you know, something like that then you'll know that that's a bad reporter and you don't need to deal with that person anymore. But so judge the reporter, not the outlet. Absolutely. Or the um, prior experience with other reporters and look at each reporter for their um, personal journalistic integrity. I think so. I mean, you know, the thing I always remember is somebody said to me, a friend of mine, who's a doctor, um, I was telling him about going to a doctor and have a, having a bad experience. And, and, uh, I, you know, I didn't, I thought that this doctor was dismissive of me. And then I went to another doctor and they were able to figure out the problem right away and they weren't dismissive. And he said, yeah, you know why? And I said, why? And he goes, cause everybody was the worst doc. Somebody was the worst doctor in every class. You know, people think that because you're a doctor, that's magical powers or something. You know, it's the same way with the media. Somebody's the worst reporter at their paper. Somebody's yeah, the worst sure. reporter in the whole state. You might get that guy or you could get a really good one. You just don't know yet. Um, and the, you know, the, the, uh, wh what you got to remember is, uh, people are people and, and also you never know who's who. I mean, at one point, Mark Banker, rest his soul, uh, was working at the, at the news and record and was a local reporter. And in a couple of years after that, he was the state house reporter. And then a couple of years after that, he was a big deal at WRAL, right? And people who dealt with Mark when he was a local reporter would tell you the same thing that people told, you know, what, what, what Phil Berger said about him at his funeral, which is Mark was a great reporter. He's what every reporter should be. Um, I couldn't tell you right now what Mark's politics are because that wasn't part of his job. And I think that that's great. He was that same guy when he was covering the Guilford County Board of Commissioners and taking guff from Skip, Al Skip Alston, you know? Um, and uh, so, you know, good reporters are good reporters always in all circumstances. Not that they don't sometimes make mistakes. Bad reporters are bad reporters and they're out there and uh, we don't like them any more than you do. And if people want to uh, read some of your articles or follow you on social media out there, what are the different ways for them to do? So that? I'm on Twitter at, at, uh, at Joe Killian PW for policy watch. Um, and I'm pretty active there and people can message me or DM me. My DMS are open. And if you want to read any of my stuff, it's all out there for free at uh, ncpolicywatch.com or uh, Google me and read some of my old stuff and laugh at it. Yeah. Well, thanks Joe. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate uh, your generous time today and always enjoy chatting with you and uh, appreciate you getting people's quotes right and, <laughs> try. and trying to be fair, even if you work for the uh, evil uh, liberal <laughs> papers out there. Um, so again, appreciate your time and, uh, and thanks. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. 
So I look forward to having more conversations with uh, Joe and with people like Joe, which is to say people that differ on many viewpoints from me, but someone that we can have a respectful conversation and talk about our differences and actually be open to hearing what the other person has to say. I walked away from this conversation thinking about a few things. Thinking about the role of the media and journalism, the fourth estate, I thought Joe had a great point about what's the real impact of cancel culture. You know, I talk about it, and I talk about cancel culture a bunch, and I think it's annoying, but to his point, what's the real impact of it? If you tick off one group, maybe you're pleasing another. So is there really an impact to cancel culture? Can you really be canceled? I'm going to have to give that one some more thought, but I thought he had some valid points there. In some ways, I'm talking about the lack of impact of cancel culture emboldens me and makes me feel a lot better that, no, there aren't really repercussions. And I say that jokingly. There are repercussions to anything you say or do. But I think we've almost made it a little bit too boogeyman-ish that, uh, that there's this scary, evil cancel culture out there that really lacks some of the teeth that we would attribute to it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and you're now getting a flavor for what I'm trying to do with this podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please follow and make sure to give us feedback. You can do that on any of the review sites out there for podcast, or you can shoot me an email or at Marty at Mavericks Marty, or you can Call us, and that's uh, 4-1-podcasts, so 4, numeral 4, numeral 1, podcasts, and uh, send me a message. Let me know what you're thinking. Thanks for tuning in.